subatomic gigantic occasion was a sweep in Japan nation when along came a dude with an ultra attitude, a common Morado, the greatest kicker of Japan. And of all man. Last you short now, baby. To not talk big now, baby. Hello everybody and welcome back to Kaiju Conversation. I'm your host, Elijah, and joining me as always, my lovely co-host and editor. Hello, I am Rex. And we are back at it again for another main episode. It's actually been a while. <laughs> like, it's, I want to say this is three weeks since we've actually posted an actual, like, episode episode. Damn. Something like that. <laughs> and... I mean, I like it's kind of weird to think this because we've actually recorded four bonus episodes since our last main episode, which was versus episode 79. And here we are with episode 80. We're just 20 away from 100, Rex. Jesus. Where, where, so, where, where, the, where, where'd all the time go? <laughs> it's been crazy. Like this year is, I mean, the podcast, I think, has been part of the issue, but this year has just flown by. Like, I feel like a broken record each week, but, like, where is – what happened to 2023? Yeah, no, this year right. – I though, I will say since, like, October, it started to slow down. Um, But I think that's because, only because we're – Only because we're waiting for minus one. I was going to say, that's the only reason is because Minus One can't get here quick enough. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, speaking of Minus One, how have you been, Rex? Uh, good for the most part, trying to dodge as many spoilers for Minus One as I can, but try as I might, one or two keep slipping in every now and again. See, you and Michael... Both have told me that like you you caught spoilers and like you you found stuff and it's like I never had that problem. Like I have success. Oh, well, granted, I click on the trailer once on on my on my account that doesn't even watch any Godzilla content. The next day in my recommended feed, what do I see? A spoiler image. Well, see, here's the thing. I've I've like watched the trailer. But like even in my like my recommendations is like the trailer. To, so I'm like I just pulled up the Toho movie uh, trailer for it. Mm-hmm. My recommended is now official trailer to our bonus episode on the Yamazaki ep- uh, exhibit G Fest and whatnot. Like I'm not getting your like stuff that's like. Bruh. Spoilers. I. I but no, I I mean I think we can both say that we're excited for minus one. It's actually been doing really well at the box office too. So far, so far, yes. I know. I'm pretty sure it's starting to make it level out to a point where it's acting. It's doing a little bit better than Shin Godzilla, not way better. Mm-hmm. I mean, bear in mind its first day was a public holiday. Right, right. But like, I mean. I mean, as uh, our friend G-Man has made it on a very clear on our server and on on Twitter in Japan, it's not about your opening weekend. It's not about your opening day. It's about your legs and how far you can go, because Shin Ultraman opened better than Shin Godzilla. 
But mm-hmm. Shin Ultraman had no legs. Well, it's not like, that it, it had no legs, just didn't have as long of legs. And so for for minus one, th- it has to have the legs of Shin Godzilla, or it's screwed. Mm-hmm. At least now, in- yes. Now, granted, I think it's a pretty easy thing to figure out that minus one will do better internationally than Shin Godzilla. I think that's a given. What a shocker. Um, the only way it could do worse is if it absolutely bombs. Right. Which I don't see that happening. Because I think it's had, I think, I, I believe it would have more uh, marketing than Shin Godzilla did because that was an event showing, not a, you know, wide release showing. So, I mean, maybe, maybe minus one. Well, so, I mean, either way, I think minus one's guaranteed to do well. Mm-hmm. But alas, we'll just have to wait and see, I suppose. We will, we will. So, I mean, outside of, you know, waiting for, for you know, minus one and whatnot. Uh, waiting for What peak. else is going on? How's your life? What's popping? Uh, not much. Just, you know, just, it's the end of the year. It's a crazy time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is true. This is true. You know, things in my personal life finally chilling out a bit, which is nice to... Nice to get a get a little break from things, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I uh, I've kind of getting to that point too, where it's like a lot of the things I'm trying to get done are getting done. So I'm hoping that I can by the end of the year. I'm hoping that I've done all of my currently like in production projects and whatnot and and whatnot. Right. Yeah. Outside of that, have you? seen any tokusatsu in the well so it's funny you bring that up because in between all of my working and whatnot and cleaning the house and whatnot um did i did i bring up that i saw godzilla 2000 in theaters Ah. have i talked about that i don't think so i think so so i did i got to see godzilla 2000 in theaters november 1st um with the Fathom screening. Mm-hmm. So that was my first millennium era slash Heisei, if you want to be technical, Godzilla movie in theaters. That was pretty cool. Uh, it was the didn't Japanese see, version. Didn't you see against my Godzilla and Fedos? Oh, that's right. Never mind. It's my third Heisei and Millennium film. <laughs> um, yeah, it's my third. So, unfortunately, it was the Japanese version. So, I haven't seen that version a lot, but now I understand how that version is not that good. The final fight is atrocious, and the sound design is just not there at all, period. I don't know, I like the Japanese version. Have you seen the U.S. version? I mean... The U.S. version was the only one I had access to for a long time. I wasn't sure how the distribution in Australia worked, so I wasn't sure if you even got the U.S. version or if it was the Japanese one. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was only the U.S. version that's been distributed here. Really? <laughs> who uh, yeah. who did the that distribution? Madman. It's just the U.S. cut is like the only one on the DVD from them. Interesting. Okay. 
I don't know why it's like the only Millennium film to not have Japanese cut on it. <laughs> I wonder if it was a sub license through Sony, and that's why. Not a clue. But I got to see it. Um, even though the Japanese version is not nearly up to par with sound design wise with the US version. Honestly, um, the only thing that actively bugs me about the Japanese version is like some of the color grading. See, my bit, I mean, the print they used was actually pretty dark. It was a pretty dark print. Yeah, I mean, that's just kind of the issue with the Japanese cut of 2000 is that it's really dark. Like, there's some shots with Godzilla, like, when he's first, like, arriving for the final battle, there's, like, a couple shots where he just straight up blends into the background. It's mm-hmm. that dark. Um, I actually didn't, I don't think that's the case on the Blu-ray from Sony. I don't think. Well, because, I mean, it, Japanese films typically do have an issue with the blacks in the prints. Right. Uh, typically they're a lot more intense than they really should be. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just like, from what I have understood, whenever like companies have acquired uh, Japanese films and they do color grading, the first thing they do is decrease the blacks because that is, it's so <laughs> intense. They have to get rid of that before they do anything else. <laughs> um, so, that was an issue. The subtitles were dub titles. Um, because on the Sony Blu-ray, I'm 99% sure it's Organizer G1. Um, because that's what it's, the Japanese script is, Organizer oh, G1. But the English version, the the dub said Regenerator G1. The subtitles said Regenerator G1, but... In the Japanese version, it's very clear they're saying organize a G1. Yeah. And it's weird to hear them, like, say organizer G1 and read regenerator G1. <laughs> it's like, um, something's not right about that. Something doesn't add up. Right. So <laughs> that was an issue. Um, But I got a really good seat. I enjoyed it. Um. I had a good conversation with somebody afterwards uh, talking about uh, kaiju movie releases, and he had seen the movie at the same theater, at the same seat 23 years ago. Um, So that was really cool. Um, You know, that was, we chatted for like an hour and a half. Um, It was a great conversation. Like, that was was a lot of fun. and we've met before, like we uh, we ran into each other at the Yuzo, the biggest battle uh, in Tokyo premiere. We've interacted a little bit at G-Fest, not a lot, just a little bit. Um, and then I think we were in the same theater for Tokyo SOS and against Mechagodzilla. <laughs> I think we both showed up. We talked about going to the same theater for minus one, but... Um, I'm going to a different theater because I want to see it in IMAX and not right. Dolby. So, you know, that's neither here nor there. But, um, I mean, I had a lot of fun with it. Um, this now, so the films I've seen in theaters now from Godzilla is I've seen Godzilla 54, Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster, Ebira Horror of the Deep, 
Destroy All Monsters, Godzilla vs. Hedera, Godzilla vs. Megalon, Terror of Mechagodzilla. But outside of that, I so I got Garo Volume 1. Yes. Now, for anybody who doesn't know, Rex, can you can you give a brief rundown of what Garo is? So Garo is a tokusatsu, is like a midnight tokusatsu series, essentially one geared towards more adult audiences. And essentially about a like horrors, these creatures, beasts, demon beasts called horrors appear, and there's a knight, Garo, who has to vanquish these horrors. And and he has the ability to transform into an armored knight. And yes, yeah, so Garo is an incredible series that has had its some of its earlier shows as well as uh, the one of its movies and a special, two specials actually, distributed by Kraken Releasing, whom had also done Godzilla 1984 and some of the other, some of the Showa movies as well around like 2014-ish. Mm-hmm. The issue is, with that is not only is Kraken not in business at the moment, but <laughs> they're gone. <laughs> but the first volume of the first Garo show is a uh, a little hard to obtain and a little right. expensive because the way I understand it. When they released Garo Volume 1, they were testing the waters to see how well it would do, and it didn't sell well at all. But that's also because there was no marketing for it. Like, it, nobody knows it exists. So they, they released Garo, and it bombed. So with what licenses they did have, they just dumped it all and stop producing Garo Volume 1 because that was the one that, you know, was in print long before the rest. Mm-hmm. So what happened is that became a very limited edition. It sold out quickly. And because nobody could acquire the first volume, nobody would buy any of the other Garo's things. It's like, it was a disaster. Like, whoever created this business practice, like, who are you? <laughs> That's not how you do it. But what, you know, what ended up happening is... Garo Volume 1 has become impossible to get for cheaper than $70. But I have people who I know who know people and have warehouses. And stuff comes in, stuff comes out, stuff is sold, stuff is bought. Collections come in, collections come out. And if I'm patient enough, 9 times out of 10 I can get Tokusatsu releases for like really good prices. Mm-hmm. Um my quote for Gunhead is nine bucks Jesus. when it comes in. Now, for Big Bad Beetleborgs and VR Troopers, that's a different story because they want 100 a pop per disc release. And so it's basically the prices of what it is everywhere else. So I'm kind of screwed on getting Beetleborgs. Um, I already got, Meta- uh, I got VR Troopers, but I didn't get all of Beetleborgs, so I'm kind of screwed. Um, <laughs> but Garo somehow came in. And I got to pay, I ended up paying $18.43, which is like right below MSRP. Mm -hmm. So I didn't even have to pay MSRP for it. And like three years ago, Sentai Filmworks, uh, the parent company of Kraken, was doing a Black Friday sale. And they were selling all the Garo releases for, I kid you not, three bucks a pop. 
mm-hmm. I think I got the TV specials for a dollar fifty each. Mm-hmm. Um, because I mean they were trying to get rid of them. Like Garo was not selling. Um now I'm pretty sure all of Garo has officially went out of print and is no long it's no longer on the Sentai chan- uh Sentai website. Kraken is officially a dead company. I think it's still some of them are on Crunchyroll, but for the most part, they're officially like done. But I got to complete my Garo collection. <laughs> so once I finish Ultraman 80, which I'm hoping I might start um in like 24 hours or 48 hours from now um like to finish that up because i think i only have like 20 episodes left i'm gonna jump into garo watch garo uh the tv special and the movie and then watch the second series of garo and that tv special um i mean to be fair that special is set during midway through the event of one of the lost episodes of Gar. <laughs> well, it's fine. It's fine. I'll still watch it that way. Like, that's how I'm going to do it. Like, I think it's, it's like, it was, I want to say it was released between sometime around during Ma- Makai Senki's run, which is the second shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like, it's literally set during the events of the first Gar, right before the finale. <laughs> So, I mean, I'm excited either way. I, uh, I, Garo's peak. well, cause I mean, you, I mean, throughout this podcast, we've, we've, you've talked about Garo like nonstop. Yes, because it's good and I'm currently rewatching it. So I'm kind of excited. Like I, you've really set the bar high and it's Keda Amamiya and I mean, Zeram is in Hekaida, Mechanical Violator Hekaider is really good. So I'm excited. Um, I hopefully maybe by next recording, I can say that I've watched some, but I, I don't know. Um, hey, there's nothing else... wrong with just te- temporarily putting a halt on Ultraman 80 like you already no. know. No, yeah. I got to get through 80. I got to like I I got to I got to end the Showa era Ultraman. I got to get through it. All right. Trust me, it's worth it for Garo. Well, what I'm going to do is I'll watch 80, and then I'll watch two series of Garo, two TV specials, and a movie. And then I'm going to watch Ultraman Tiga, which is apparently really good, and everything will be fine, right? I should, I should watch Tiga. I, I should try that again. But you oh, all... finish Max. I need to finish Max. I keep forgetting. You and I should watch Tiga, like... Sure. In, in unison together. There we go. That's how we'll get through Tiga. I started Tiga seven years ago, and I watched two minutes of it and said, no, this looks awful, and I shut it off. <laughs> that's Like, funny. that's how far that went. I had just finished Ultra 7. I was like, man, that was really good. And then I started Ultraman Tiga, like, the day of finishing Ultra 7. I watched two minutes of it. I was like, this does not look at all like what I want to watch. I'm done. Damn. And I shut it off. <laughs> That's funny. And then Mill Creek eventually started releasing stuff, so I started watching it again. And, uh, you know, I started with Return of Ultraman, then I did Ace, then Taro, then Leo, and now I'm on 80. And now you've, so now you've seen the bottom of a barrel. <laughs> yeah, I've seen Taro. God, Taro's such an awful show. See, I have no opinion of it because I haven't seen it. 
eventually I hope we can cover Ultraman like series on this show. I can't wait to talk about Taro because it's going to be Taro hate every episode. <laughs> I it'll probably I'll probably have to find a way to like sit down and watch that show again. And then Leo is probably going to be difficult after the last 20 episodes. Oh boy. So but I mean outside of that, like talking about Tokusatsu I've actually watched. Um so I've watched a lot since our last main episode recording. Cause it's been about a month since we recorded not not even a it's been over a month. It's been a month and a week since we last recorded an episode of the main episodes. Yeah. But we did kind of talk about at least a few of the things, if I remember right in a Halloween uh, bonus. Which probably isn't out yet. I don't know. I don't remember how our schedule lines up, but there isn't there is a bonus episode that is either out or coming out that has us talking about a movie that is not on brand and a like segment where we just talk about all of the stuff we've watched. So since then, I believe these are what I've watched. Zombie Ass, Toilet of the Dead, Kenochi, Lady Ninja, Aragami, the Raging God of Battle, which is not technically Tokusatsu or Kaiju, but it is a Ryuei Kitamura film, so I wanted to bring it up. And then Tormented 3D. Well, as for me, following said recording, I've watched Aragami with you, by coincidence, The Grudge Free, and I also rewatched both Godzilla, Godzilla Final Wars, did some, yeah. Watch the Godzilla Fest stuff. And, last but certainly not least, finally completed the Always Sunset on 3rd Street trilogy. So now you are basically set up to go see Godzilla Minus One because you've seen all but like three of his films that are live action. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. I, I, I would like to hopefully watch Juvenile as well though hopefully but we'll see yeah because you've got juvenile you've got ballad and then you've got destiny and field the man they call pirate oh that's right i keep forgetting that movie (laughs) i think it is his least popular movie actually (laughs) so that's not too. i don't know i think destiny is Uh, i don't know i've just talked about destiny more than fueled i've seen more Images and clips from Destiny, and by that I've I heard mean more about Fuel. Clip. <laughs> I don't and know. Sakura Ando's in it, but that's awesome. So, okay, how was the Grudge Three? Because I did just buy that, but I still have to sit through the Grudge Two before I can watch the Grudge Three. Well, it is. It, it's you can tell it's Shimizu had no involvement. <laughs> you can roughly tell. It, it's it's not good. It's not good, and I think I'm already starting to forget most of the film, to be honest. <laughs> so that's a good sign. Hmm. It is occasion. It is a little funny in one or two scenes, particularly the ending, the very very bad ending. <laughs> and yeah, about the only other thing I remember from it is uh, 
Amanda from the Saw movies is in it. Oh, that's that's about most of what I remember. (laughs) And I know you and I have talked off cast, but you liked Always Sunset 64, but it did have some story issues. Yeah, so like, for like, it's about a two hour, 20 minute movie. The first two hours, pretty much almost completely amazing. Like, we're, we're like, no, like, second best Yamasaki movie for me, like, level. And then the last 20 minutes of uh, Chigawa, Hidetake Yoshioka's character, his story happens. And yeah, that really soured the movie <laughs> a lot. Because it is a terrible ending for it. Oh, I hate, I, I hate that last twenty minutes of his character story. I, I hate that. He's okay. just sucked. He's just such a dick to Junosuke. All because his father was a dick to him. Interesting. Okay. I mean, I hope. I mean, I would hope one day we get to cover those because Godzilla and Takashi Yamazaki. Um, They're also just great movies. But maybe, I mean, we'll see. They'll they'll definitely be bonuses if we do cover them. Mm. Yeah, you need to see you need to see how funny Shinichi Satsumi is. He's so great, and you don't know you don't know how how funny of an actor he is. <laughs> That's fair. Well, I I mean, we're about about forty minutes in here. So are you are you ready to transition into our main topic? Sure. Okay. Um, you might have to edit this part out, but I forgot what we're talking about. Oh, well, conveniently for you, I actually remember. Good. Yeah. Good. I'm actually prepared. Okay. Well, I, I mean, I'm, I'm prepared. (laughs) You're just failing, honestly. But yes. Today, as viewers have already realized, we will be covering 1966's Godzilla film. You only live twice. I don't think Godzilla's in James Bond. I thought it was a James Bond movie. Well, there's James Bond elements, but like, but you know, there's a there's a big lizard in the movie. I, I've actually never watched the James Bond movie. Is that a problem? Or have I actually? Okay, good. We're in the same boat. Cool. We're fine. I, mean, I would love. I I I've had like. Doctor No, like the very first James Bond film, like on my Prime Video, like watch list for ages, but I've never gotten around to it. I'll be honest, I'm actually more interested in the Japanese knockoff movies than the actual <laughs> that, that, that is the mo- that is the most Elijah thing that could you could have possibly said. <laughs> That's the quote for the day. I'm actually more interested in the Japanese knockoffs than the legitimate movies. Yeah, Mr. Zombie Month would be. So, what are we covering, Rex? We are covering 1966's Ibera, Hotter of the Deep, also known as Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster, also known as Gojira Ebida Mosura Nankai no Dai Keto. Which translates to Godzilla, Ebra, Mothra, Big Duel in the South Seas. Yes. <laughs> Which, okay, so first, I for some reason have had issues with the titles, two titles of this movie. 
um, the original Japanese version, when you translate it and localize it, I thought it was Godzilla, Mothra, Ebira, Big Duel, or... Yeah, I always remember yeah. it as being Godzilla, Mothra. So that Mothra, threw me off. And then I have all... So the issue with Ebra Horror of the Deep is it has a similar title set up to Yonguri, Monster from the Deep. So <laughs> in my head, and like there's moments like while I was researching, I was writing Ebra Horror from the Deep. And I'm like, no, it's of the Ebra Horror of the Deep. So for some reason, this movie, outside of the title Godzilla versus the Sea Monster, I have struggled with just remembering this title for some reason. And it's funny. Damn. I mean, for me, it's like, it's, I would say it's a more common title in my country. So like, I'm kind of used to calling it Ebra Horror of the Deep. I mean, hell, in my country, it's been marketed as Godzilla, Ebra, well, so Horror of the Deeds. I grew up with this movie. <laughs> this was one of my first 10 Godzilla movies. Oh, same. This was, this was either my second or third film. Because, like, my first... I, I want to say I watched them all in one night. My first 3G films were Final Wars. That was the first one I watched. And then it was either... Ibra or Gigan that I watched next. I don't remember which order I watched them in. Well, see, for me, it was, it was one or the other. Terror of Mechagodzilla, Mothra versus Godzilla, Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster, and then I want to say it was Godzilla, Son of Godzilla, and then I think it was Godzilla versus the Sea Monster, and then Godzilla King of the Monsters. So this was probably top, like, this was the fifth film probably I'd watched. Mm. Um, cause I mean, I borrowed my aunt's VHS tapes, as I've said in the right. past for other films. And just when I was talking about the introduction to my, you know, dive into the world of Kaiju and Tokusatsu. Um, but it was always marketed as Godzilla versus the sea monster. It had that title card, that title sequence. It had the AIP cuts. It had the AIP dub, or it wasn't AIP. It was Walter Reed slash uh, um, uh, Film Ventures International, or Film Ventures Entertainment. Yeah, see, my old DVD when I was growing up was a bootleg, so <laughs> I don't remember what cut that was. <laughs> I know it was dubbed, I just don't remember like if it was the international dub right. or if it was like the watery well, dub. See, so I... Probably see the international dub. I so that's the that's the cut I watched. I used the the Kraken releasing um, Blu-ray. So for me, it's kind of weird because it's not the dub I grew up with, and it's not the title card I grew up with. So it sounded really weird. I was used to more annoying voices. Um, and I honestly, it's been a long time since I've watched Ebira. Um. So for me, this was kind of weird, like hearing the voices. Yeah, yeah. For me, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it in a few years either. It's been like well, actually, last I should I correct myself. I saw this. Let's see. I saw this last year. I watched Ebira at G Fest last year in theaters, but it was the Japanese version, so I didn't like hear the dubbed voices, but. 
before that, it, it's, it had been like five years since I had seen it. Because I haven't done a Godzilla marathon. I mean, I may have done one in 2019, maybe. So it might have been like three years before last year. But I mean, if I had if I did a Godzilla marathon in 2019, I can tell you right now I was watching them and just binging them. Just boom, watch it done. Boom, next one, next one, next one. Like not even like. Just embracing the Godzilla stuff. And honestly, I don't think I even did that because I did not rewatch the anime Godzilla movies. I think I've seen Planet of the Monsters (laughs) twice. Maybe. I don't even think that's true. I think I've only watched them once. So it, this is, I mean, this was kind of a fresh viewing for me, at least. Yeah. Oh, you know, it's been ages for me since I've seen this one. So... (laughs) Do we want to dive into the pre-production for this film? So, I mean, I'll I'll start off here and we'll kind of bounce off of each other. It's, I mean, everybody knows this. Originally, the film was titled Operation Robinson Caruso, King Kong versus Ebira. Um, Toho had the rights to King Kong for five years after licensing him from RKO Pictures in 1962. So they would have had him up until 1967. Um, fun fact, we're not talking about Destroyal Monsters here, but uh, there is this version of the that script that had King Kong in the film, but because of the rights lapsing, he couldn't appear. Really? Huh. I don't remember where I heard I've that. I've never heard that one before, actually. I know Ibera. I know Ibera apparently was in an early draft of that of Destroyer Monsters. I'm pretty sure King Kong was, Sanda and Gyra were at one point, Ebira was. Yeah, I know that they changed, that they, like, it took them, like, the monster roster for that movie, like, basically. It was kind of like Final Wars, but not nearly as, like, because, I mean, Final Wars, they literally had the Bandai's just on a table, and, like, there's, I guarantee you, there's probably 50 versions of that film that were thought up in the planning process. I mean, I mean, you have like, yeah, probably, but like you have a, your book, the Godzilla final wars completion book actually like tells you which monsters were in each right. like actual, like draft of the script. Which is a great book. Yeah. I want it. Give me. I'll think about it. So Sekizawa was the one. So I, I I've heard. Okay. There's also there's two versions of this story. I'll tell one and then if you know the other, I'll let you tell it. If not, I'll say it. So Sekizawa was doing the script for Operation Robinson Caruso. And it was intended to be a co-production with Rankin Bass. When the script was done, because Rankin Bass was doing the King Kong show. Uh, co-produced with Toei at the time. Rankin Bass saw the script. They liked it. It worked. They actually had produced all of, they had produced the Ebera suit. They had Mothra, which depending on the story appears in that script or does not more than likely she did not, or he didn't in the dub. They say it's he. And I think if you go off of he, (laughs) yes, well, I'm pretty sure they even like, if you go canonically, 
Mothra 64 was a she, the child was a he, that he became the he in Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster, and then that he would become full-grown Mothra and appear in Ebira. I think so. I think it does be in the dub. I think. I don't remember. I'm trying. I'm, I'm like thinking back, and I, f- I, I could be misremembering this as well. But I swear that's only like a thing in like the dub. I don't remember. I, I, I don't. I just know that based off of the dubs, canonically, it still works. I don't think. I don't think there's even like. I don't think the Japanese versions really like. I don't think there was ever any intention for like either of the like the twin Mothra lavas to be specifically male or female, I don't think. I always took it as one was male, one was female. Right. That's but I, how I, I think that only really actually is like a legitimate thing in Tokyo SOS, I think. Maybe. I, I don't know. I don't remember. I know Tokyo SOS just actually has straight up like sexual dimorphism in the design slightly. Okay. So Operation Robinson Caruso, it's basically the same story as we did get for Sea Monster. But, I mean, Mothra was either in it or wasn't in it. We don't know. And then there were some slight changes. Um, Toho was kind of done with the Subaraya Honda duo. Um, I mean, Subaraya and Honda had been doing this now for... 12 this would have been 12 years jesus Um, yeah and they did gargantuas together so they were on their 12th year um so like they they had been doing this for a while and it was very expensive all of their films toho kind of wanted to lean back on the the budget because at this point it was getting harder to finance the stuff right after 1966 i mean you see in 67 a duo um, production with King Kong Escapes and Son of Godzilla, but both were at a very like lower cost than the others. Um, both were reduced prices. Um, but after that, it was just one Tokusat, one kaiju movie a year outside of 69, which had Godzilla's Revenge and Latitude Zero. But even then, Godzilla's Revenge was a very cheaply made film. Right. Um, I mean, they they um, they intended on ending the Godzilla series anyways with, you know, Destroyer Monsters in 68. So this was the beginning of the planned end for Godzilla and, and Toho and, and the whole Daikaiju Ega thing. Right. I mean, bear in mind, it's also important to mention that this year, 1966, was also the start of the first monster boom in Japan as well. Yes, because in this year you had Toei produce uh, the Magic Serpent. Right, Daie was producing Gamera vs. Barugon as well as all three Daimajin films. Um, Toei also, I, I'm trying to remember, I want to say they were developing uh, Akage Ninja Red Shadow, which... Um, it, it was right after Magic Serpent because they reused some of the same props um, that had kaiju in it. And then Subaraya Productions was officially working on Ultra Q. Was it, was it Ultra Q and Kaiju Busca? Yeah, I mean, Ultra Q started, premiered in January of 1966. 
and then Ultraman started in July. Yeah. And then you had uh, P Productions, right? They're the ones that did Space oh, Giants. Yeah. yeah, they did. Yeah, Space Giants or Ambassador Magma. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm trying to think. Uh, Shochiku didn't do anything yet. Nikatsu wasn't in it. I want to say that's it. Um, but this was the beginning. And then, of course, 67, whole nother ball game like that was when every company in Japan was producing Kaiju Ega. Um, I have a list of all the 60s stuff. Yeah, you had uh, Ult- uh, you had Ultra Q, Magic Serpent, Daimajin, Gamma versus Barugan, Return of- Return of Daimajin, Ambassador Magma, Ultraman, The War of the Gargantuas, Return of Daimajin, Kaiju Busca, Daimajin Strikes Back, and Ebira Horror of the Deep. Um, so Red Shadow had not started production yet. Um, so that's what was going on at the time, which is still quite a lot considering. Before, like the prior year, 1965, only saw um, Frankenstein versus Baragon, Gamma the Giant Monster, and Invasion of Astro Monster. So, for, I mean, Kaijuega, this was the beginning of a turn, but it was also the beginning of the end. Yeah. Um, if for modern terms, look at Marvel was producing three films a year. Now they're doing two. Are they? I think. Are they? No, actually, I think it's still three. But I mean, the I box mean, office returns are well. <laughs> <laughs> critically and financially, they are. They I mean, are you also not. remember Marvel is also doing like how many TV shows as well too. But they've even announced they're lowering production on that because it's just not financially viable. Disney Plus, the oh, numbers came back. They, they were like losing like three hundred million or something. Three hundred and fifty million dollars. Yeah. Yeah, Jesus. <laughs> but that's not either nor neither here nor there. <laughs> yeah. Um. But we were beginning to get that oversaturation, right? Right. Um. <clears throat> people could live with it in '66. It worked in 67, 68, it was slowing down, 69, it was really starting to, you know, have a problem, 70, it crashed, 71 was picking up the pieces and moving slower, 72, it was slow, and it just was, you know, slow up until about 75, and then it basically died pretty much until 80, and then after 80, it started sputtering again. And just really, it hasn't come back to that point. No, at least on a on a major studio level. Nowadays, there's a lot being produced, but it's all on a smaller scale. Right. But Toho wanted to bring in one of their cheaper B, like their B movie director, uh, Jun Fukuda. And by this point, Subaraya was, you know knee like head deep in working on establishing his production company Subaraya Productions and uh working like very hands-on on Ultra Q and Kaiju Busca and Ultraman. So he was absent, but Rankin Bass wanted Toho to put Honda and Subaraya in charge of it. Right. 
And Toho said no. And because of that back and forth feud, the project just went like under. Mm. But Toho had already made the sets. They had already like cast most of the people like they had already had a script. They had the suits made. They had the new King Kong suit made, which would later appear in King Kong Escapes, of course. Um, So they were like, we've spent all this money. What are we going to do? <laughs> um, and they had the 65 Godzilla suits still laying around. They had the 64 Mothra puppets laying around. And so Sekizawa rewrote the scripts and included Godzilla instead of King Kong. And then Fukuda was approached April 21st of 1966 and production started and ended up get the film released on December 17th of 1966. Yeah. <laughs> Which must've been a pretty short production time span, all things considered. Right. Um, because so when Fukuda came on, the Godzilla script was already done because he didn't even know about the King Kong script. Right. Um, and I mean, the I want to say, according to like John LeMay's book, the draft, the first draft screenplay is dated to about July 13th of 1966. Right, right. And special effects filming, I know, ended less than a month before the film came out, with it being completed around like November 21st according to some the date on some photos so yeah they i mean that i mean that means they pretty much had a week to edit the film yeah pretty much week couple weeks yeah (laughs) not very long at all (laughs) so i also know that according to what fukuda said he had to like cut scenes frequently yeah Um, is is, the trans like toho had a very like particular a particular runtime they wanted the film to be and were pretty strict on keeping it around that time. At least that's what I know it makes it sound like. Yeah, because I think Sekazawa's draft for the King Kong one, I think that it was like 119, 119 pages, pages. Which, if you understand screenplays, that's roughly two hours and like two minutes. Right. That's actually pretty long. That's that's right. pretty long. But that that's a draft, right? So yeah. stuff is going to be reworked and stuff's going to be cut um, for budgetary and, and, you know, scheduling restrictions. Mm-hmm. But they I cut mean, the – It's possible that also I, – I, I could be – I'm making this up. I'm speculating this. But it's possible that the way Japanese screenplays are formatted – and because of like Japanese writing, it could also maybe cause a discrepancy there in that sort of like rule of thumb with um, with like English screenplays. Maybe mm-hmm. I'd have to because I I have the Shin Godzilla screenplay. I I should go and see how many. I mean, with Shin Godzilla, like everyone involved in that film, uh, like early on, basically when they read the script, that was a three hour script. That that film script is a three hour script that his that Arnold's like we're go- we're gonna make it. It's a three hour script, but trust me, we're gonna make it two hours. And like all and like the producers were worried about that. <laughs> like I'm not kidding. That <laughs> there's a fair few quotes oh. about that. <laughs> That's why they had to do like a drama um, in pre production where they had like a voice cast and storyboards. <laughs> 
just to prove it. Well, I'll well, I'll I'll have to go and look and see how many pages that is yeah. just to kind of yeah let me get know. an idea. <laughs> but they, I mean, the final film. I want to say it's an hour and twenty seven twenty seven minutes. Yeah. So that's roughly what that's eighty seven minutes, right? Yeah. Just shy of ninety. Um, which, I mean, that's still a decent. I mean, by the 70s the godzilla films were running about 75 to 80 minutes Mm -hmm. um so i mean it's still not the shortest but that's still a pretty short runtime all things considered like yeah i mean most of the previous films were pretty much like 90 a solid 90 minutes i want to say right 90 to about 100 except maybe raids again i think raids again well i feel like 80 minutes Raids Again also suffered from that rushed production, too. Right, right, yeah. And it's funny you bring up Raids Again because Honda, up until this point, the only kaiju film that Honda did not work on was Raids Again, if I'm remembering correctly. I think he had, he touched, he worked on every other kaiju film up until 66 besides Raids Again. Mm. And I mean, from the whole series, this uh the only other Godzilla film to not have been had composer Akira of Fukube was Raids Again. Mm-hmm. And then this film was the next one, which both featured scores from Masaru Sato. Right. Um which I'm just gonna say this one's way more memorable than his Raids Again one. See, I like the main theme of Raids Again. The da, 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 da. that one yeah the main theme is good <laughs> i don't know uh, it's I, always I think, just i think ibura's score is interesting not my favorite godzilla score i think it's a bit i felt i feel like at a couple points it feels really strange for a godzilla film <laughs> yeah but i and want to I do. Once we get to like really talking about a score, I want to talk about um, some of his other works that are non kaiju that I've heard. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll we'll talk about that um, a little later. The so Ebra, uh, the other story is Rankin Bass wrote the King Kong Ebra script. The other story is if an American uh, wrote that script and pitched it to Toho. It included Mothra, Toho liked it, and then they had the issue between Honda, Subaraya, and Fukuda and Arikawa, which led to them just not doing it, Toho taking the script, and then just doing their own thing with it. The only issue with that is the source says Mothra was included, but why, like, the question would be, why would a foreign producer include a Toho kaiju? I mean, would they not have to... Would they not legally have to, if it was an American script or idea, would they not have to credit the American who came up with the story as well? This is true. So, uh, well, actually, maybe not, because uh, maybe it could be like a one cut of the dead thing where it was like the original concept and not uh, inspired by or adapted by. John Beck moment? (laughs) (laughs) I mean... That's uh, knowing that 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 can happen is kind of interesting. Now it kind of puts a whole new play on what you know what you could do with 
credits and whatnot. And it kind of, you kind of realize how messed up things can be. Mm, that'd be interesting if true, but I just, I just don't know if I'd believe it. Yeah. See that one. I struggled to believe. Um, I, I mean, I believe the other one, but that one I really don't believe. Yeah. But that being said, there is like, um, in the sixties, Toho did have somebody write from America a version of Batman meets Godzilla, and then Sekizawa did one. Right. Which was around the same time-ish as this. <laughs> right. So, it's. I feel like there might be a little bit of a uh, like I wouldn't say it's entirely out of the realm of possibility. Especially given, you know, how, how long it's been, information like that kind of does get lost. Right over time, and then I don't remember who was writing it, but there was a script dated for a kaiju movie from 1966 that uh, would apparently have included Godzilla, but that script eventually morphed into Space Amoeba. Uh, I I've heard that there's no from what I was reading, there's no version of that script that actually does feature Godzilla. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, that's that's what I've read, um, but many have sort of attributed that to have, or suggested that it could have been envisioned early on. I mean, I want to say this is also was this around the time that there were considerations for a Godzilla TV show? I think so. I think. Well, no, that was sixty-seven. Sixty-seven. Okay. Yes. Okay. See, as we get. As we have gotten into this um, time period, the I, the amount of Godzilla concepts like increase exponentially. Um, I mean, we haven't really covered a lot of the scrapped Godzilla movies. I'd like to eventually one day, because um, like there's a there's a handful from the fifties, a few from the early sixties, and whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, but like starting this year, like sixty six up until like the early 80s there's like an idea for each year for a godzilla movie right and a couple tv shows mm -hmm. like zone fighters right <laughs> so i mean it's one of those things where it's like there some people have suggested that either 66 would have been an off year for godzilla or they had something envisioned but nothing concrete and then the Robinson Caruso script just fell into Godzilla. Mm. Depends, I guess. <laughs> Isn't really any concrete confirmation on either theory, I guess, at the moment. And probably, probably never will be, to be honest. Yeah. We, we are so far removed from that time period and the people who were around yeah. at that point. The only way is if there's like some obscure like Japanese source that hasn't been translated yet. Maybe. That's, right. that's like the only way. So Ibra completion book, hear me out here. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, was there anything else really you had on pre-production? No. I mean, that's really all I had surprisingly the amount of information on this film is not a lot Probably limited all things considered from at least um, from my research as well i will say i feel like this film in the at least the godzilla fandom 
has been greatly ignored the influences, which I mean, we'll talk about while we when we talk about the movie, of course, um, because the influences this film has in understanding the context of why it is the way it is makes it a little I mean, you you can understand it a little bit more because this film is straight up a comedy. Yeah. Like this is not the sci-fi space opera Astro Monster was or the sci-fi comedy adventure that Ghidra was. And it's not the sci-fi fantasy that Mothra was or the satire that King Kong Versus was. This is a comedy. It's meant to be a parody comedy film, which nobody talks about. Yeah, but nobody talks about a lot of things when it comes to this franchise, I'm going to be honest. <laughs> I mean, this is true. But like as as we, you know, have been breaking down and, and talking about each Godzilla movie, understanding the time period and the intentions and and you know other kaiju content and other tokusatsu and the just content being made at the time suddenly puts these films into a lot more interesting light. I mean GMK, I I mean I've talked about GMK on uh, the Autistic Lizard Productions podcast. Um where I basically broke down how it's basically a proto-J-horror movie. And it makes sense because Kaneko did start off in the late 90s doing, I mean, he didn't start, but he was doing J-horror right. in the late 90s when the J-horror boom happened, and GMK is shot like a Japanese horror movie until the final act. So, I mean, I haven't seen the films that this movie is sat uh, as parodying. Yeah. But reading about it and at least having an idea of what it is, it suddenly makes a lot more sense why there's certain things going on in it. So, with that being said, if you're ready, Rex, I say we jump into this movie. All righty. I'm going to let you start us off here. So, title sequence, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Title sequence. Following following our credits, we uh, learn that you know people, specifically the brother of one of our main characters, Yota, are being lost in the South Seas, and you know the police, the Japanese police, are doing nothing. You know they can't; they have no uh, legislation in the in the area, unfortunately. Which. I think part of it too is they found they established that they found wreckage of the boat, and because they did, right? They, no one believes that the that the brother Yata, whose name is Yata, is alive. Right, and the only person that's saying Yata's alive is Yota a Shinto priest, and yeah, the psychic that he consulted. Right, and so I mean, people are like, "No, nah, that's just superstition. We're not going to listen to that." Right. Eventually, after getting nowhere with the police and the media, he goes to a uh, dance competition that is offering you know, a prize of a yacht. Unfortunately, he's too late and can't get can't join in. But uh, yeah, two other guys who were there, he ends up making uh, having a bit of a chat too, and ends up, and and convinces them to you know, show him around some nearby yachts for some reason which is kind of weird it's like i wouldn't show somebody some yachts that i just met like and that i don't own and i'm gonna trespass on the yachts 
Yeah, that's another thing. Like, like (laughs) they're literally like everything they're doing is wrong. Like they're college students, but they're still being really, really, really stupid for college students. Right. Right. Yeah. No. So there's a a lot of kind of wishy washy writing in this movie where it's like these characters. I don't know why you make these decisions, but (laughs) whatever. (laughs) <laughs> the the characters in this definitely are not the smartest <laughs> besides one of them one of them's like obviously an intelligent human being and he's the best right but even he makes some questionable mis- decisions here and there yeah and the the whole like ignoring who he is is kind of yeah a bit odd and just, yeah but yeah following this they you know go to a dock and start just going on a board on a random yacht and while they're exploring the area uh a guy comes out with a rifle it's akira takarada the man the myth the legend <laughs> which i love his, so his entrance the college students the three of them go down into the boat turn on a light and then Takarada just rolls out of here with a gun. And he's like, who are you? What are you doing? You're trespassing on this property. Because in the dub, he says trespassing, breaking and entering. Yeah, no, he says that in the sub as well. Okay, and there's one more he lists off, and he's like, you guys are breaking the law pretty, like, you're doing a lot wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, man, like, it's just, Wow. The, the his intro is just insane. Yeah. Eventually he just lets him stay the night on board. Yeah. Which is which is a bizarre decision. And he says they can stay till the morning, but it's like they never asked to even stay the night. Yeah. They're just supposed to be looking. Why are they staying the night? Yeah, did they not intend of on going home do they not have things they need to do yeah regardless they stay the night but when when Takarada wakes up he finds not only is his gun missing but they're sailing yeah and Rota broke the gun yeah I Part of me thinks that he did that to be on, like on purpose, just to like make sure he didn't have a gun. But the, I, I the think, dialogue, I think some of the dialogue, if I remember right, the dialogue suggests that it was like a toy gun or something. So like a fake. No, Rota says that he thought it was a toy gun, mm. but I I don't know. the The dub at least suggests that he thought it was a toy and it broke. But Takarada's character, uh, Yoshimura makes it very clear it's not a toy i mean i sort of interpreted it as like perhaps it like was a toy he was just using it to like he didn't have an actual gun but he was using it like to threaten your factor yeah fear factor mm-hmm. exactly and i mean he is meant to be a heroic ish character at least later on but i suppose it doesn't really matter either way it's broken is broken. And they go up onto the uh the deck of the ship. Yeah. Which 
everybody's like, let's turn back. And Rota's like, no, this is a gift of the gods. We're going to sail. Yeah. And just because Takarada doesn't know how to, how to, uh, or anyone else know how to, you know, ride, drive a boat, they're just like, okay, fine. Is it drive a boat? I think it's sail a boat. Yes. Sail, steer. Couldn't think of a word. Brain was malfunctioning, okay? <laughs> but no, <laughs> he is so ignorant. Rota's such an ignorant character. Yeah. <laughs> like, he is such an obnoxious character throughout the story. It's like, how are these people still alive? I mean, why, I guess it follows. Why is so nonchalant about this? <laughs> yes! Like, if I was him, I would have already thrown him off the ship. Bro, the type of character Takarada is, like, he would have, yeah, he would have just thrown him off the ship, or, been, or at least been threatening him to do that. And, I mean, like, he does try and scheme a little later, hey, we need to get off here. <laughs> With, like, the other guys, but... Well, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but Rote has officially kidnapped people. Yes, basically. Rota kidnapped people, endangered them, stole a yacht, broke breaking and entering. Like Rota's done more crime than Takarada did. I mean, to be fair, Takarada did steal four million yen. He stole money and he did break into a yacht, but like that was all he did. I mean, he didn't honestly, endanger. I think, I think the whole idea is that Takarada's just hiding out on the yacht. To be honest, <laughs> yes. Instead of stealing, he was just hiding out there until morning. Yeah, and then he would go on his way. Mm. But speaking of him hiding out, the following scene when they're plotting, um, before that, there's some radio, a radio broadcast establishing that an American movie producer's yacht's missing. It's clearly established that this is the yacht, and that somebody broke in and stole four million yen, and he's on the loose. And Takarada shuts it off before it can really continue. Um, Mm-hmm. Which they question. Which first, I'm going to say I love the setup. I love them like not telling you that it's him, but also telling you that it's him. I think that's great. Yeah. Um, I like how we trust the audience <laughs> to yes. connect the dots. Um, but that being said, I don't understand why the characters are questioning it until halfway through the movie. <laughs> Because literally it's established it's not his yacht. So we already know that he broke into the yacht. Why was he on the yacht? He had a gun. Why did he have a gun? Like they question him about the stuff and he just says, never mind it, like ignore it. And they just do that. Like throughout this movie, anytime they question his past, he says, don't worry about it. That's not important. And they don't worry about it. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, in the context of it really isn't important for them when, you know, like pretty much right after this, a storm comes and they get attacked by a giant claw in the sea. Which did the first like 15 minutes of this kind of remind you of Matango too? Yes. Oh, 100%. Yeah. <laughs> Like this, the op like up until the appearance of the claw, this is basically the setup to Matango, right? Well, not this, not quite the same with like not the characters, 
but like just you know a bunch of characters on a yacht drifting to <laughs> it's a similar sort of premise it is and this is where we are i mean throughout the film already we've had some of sato's score but this is where it really starts getting intense right um, which I love his score for this movie. It's very unique to this film. Um, if I remember right, Son of Godzilla kind of reuses the motifs and the concepts of this score, but this will always be the score for Evera, like this sound. Um, I think the I think that the actual music, specifically Ebera's theme, like during this sequence in particular is genuinely like a brilliant track and it really it's one that like when i think of the music of this movie i think it like the dun 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 which was meant to sound a little bit like uh james bond yeah oh yeah no it's a very james bond-esque theme right um and before we dive into that, because I think now, uh, no, we'll hold off on talking about the James Bond connections this film has. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do want to say, so another Mar- uh, Sato film that I've watched that's not Raids Again or Ebera, Son of Godzilla, Mechagodzilla, Megalon, um, is Yojimbo, directed by Akira Kurosawa. Yeah. Very similar score. Um, Yojimbo... And Ebira have very similar sounds. And like when I watched Yojimbo for the first time, I was like, this has to be Sato. This sounds exactly <laughs> like what he does. And I was right. Um, and that is a beautiful score as well. Um, I believe Sato actually did a lot of uh, He did he was like the go-to for Kurosawa. Yeah, Kurosawa hated Kurosawa uh, didn't really like it for Kubo. <laughs> Because they did the dueling pistols, I think. Is that the name of it? I don't remember. I know they did like one film together and then they never worked together again. <laughs> they did the quiet duel together. Um, And the reason that was the only film they ever did was because, as we all know, if Kube knew what he was doing. And would argue, I mean, he argued with Honda constantly. Mm. But Honda also knew if Akube knew what he was doing. But Kurosawa, like, did not deal with somebody who was who thought they knew more than he did on his own films. <laughs> um, so, yeah, no, they never worked together. But Sato did a lot of uh, Kurosawa films. And at least Yojimbo, I mean, I have the Yojimbo main theme on my uh, Spotify playlist for all of my music. Uh, from films because that like it's beautiful the the score for i mean it's playful it's playful it's upbeat it's very light-hearted very much like ebira horror of the deep mm. um i'd have to give that another lesson honestly you have you seen your jimbo i've seen the film i just don't quite remember like it's amazing film amazing film <laughs> it's good um but jumping back here into ebira After the giant claw, our main characters wash up on an island. Um, During the whole uh, wind, the bad, bad uh, weather sequence, we do see that what was in the the suitcase that uh, Yoshimura's, uh, Takarada's character, Yoshimura, had was a lot of money. And now it's all gone. Yep. 
Um, <laughs> it's also worthy to note while they're on the boat, Takarada's character was making a skeleton key. Mm. Which, as a kid, I wanted to make a skeleton key after watching this movie. I know that for <laughs> a fact. Um, maybe that's where I start. I mean, I, I can sometimes pick locks. Maybe this is one of those, like, like if you trace back my my habits, this is one of those films that, that really made it a thing. I see you really aspired to be the... <laughs> The thief. I aspire to be Akira Takarada, even though I never will be. Okay, you know what? That's fair. I think everyone kind of aspires to be Akira Takarada in their own way. Even the people that don't know who he is. Yes. Like the Academy. Yes. We're not including him guys. in the... Yeah. But yeah. Going, uh, going back to Ibra, now that they're sort of stuck on the island, they... Decide to ex- they uh, explore a bit, find a they find a machete and realize the island is likely inhabited, speculating that it might be cannibals. Mm-hmm. Um, Which they go through the very cliched like Toho soundstage like forests and woods. Yeah, but then they also just go through some like actually like beautiful looking locations as well. Yes. The on-location shooting is beautiful, and I love the the soundstage uh, forests. Yeah, I love it. It's it's just a little. It is you can tell when they're on the soundstage and when they're actually on location because there's a very a distinct look to both. Right. the The soundstage stuff definitely gives me like Gilligan's Island vibes. Hmm. Do you know what Gilligan's Island is? I. Uh, <laughs> Not really. So Gilligan's Island was a 1964 uh, sitcom about a group of people. Um, One of them was a professor. One was a millionaire and his wife, a movie star, a girl from Kansas, and then the skipper and his first mate, Gilligan. You were like on on sitcoms. Have you you ever thought about that? (laughs) What? You like know all the sitcoms, man. I know I know classic sitcoms because I watch classic sitcoms. Um have you ever thought of making sitcom uh sitcom conversation? <laughs> I I mean I do an elf show. <laughs> I'd happily do an elf show. Um which real quick it's very important actually now that I've found out that I brought up Gilligan's Island it was shown in Japan in 1966. So it's probably this film definitely had to take inspiration from Gilligan's Island. Um, and, you know, because, uh, I mean, the whole setup, Gilligan's Island, it, it's summarized in its opening theme. Just sit back and you'll hear a tale, a tale of a fateful trip that started from this tropic port aboard this tiny ship. The mate was a mighty sailing man, the skipper brave and sure. Five passengers set sail that day for a three-hour tour. A three-hour tour. The weather started getting rough. The tiny ship was tossed. If not for the courage of the fearless crew, the minnow would be lost. The minnow would be lost. The ship set ground on the shore of this uncharted desert isle, where Gilligan, the skipper too, the millionaire and his wife... The movie star, the professor, and Marianne 
here on Gilligan's Island. Um, and it ran for, I believe it was four seasons, and each episode they would either have to find a way to survive on the island, or like things like people would like like they would come out of an airplane and they'd land and you know they would eat dinner with the crew and they would talk about getting off the island and then it just so happens that they can't get five people and it's just the one dude that can leave um and so it would just be you know each episode very episodic what what's the crew gonna what's the five plus the crew gonna do mm-hmm. um and in a way Ebra kind of does that uh with like they you know they set sail from a port and you know they get into a bad weather storm they crash on this island and the look of the island is very much like Gilligan's Island so i mean i think it's it wouldn't be too far fetched to assume that considering Gilligan's Island was broadcast in Japan in 1966 there would be some light influences from it at least on the look of the show um, i guess even their outfits um if i remember correctly are kind of similar um to those found uh but then again it was all kind of bright and cheerful and and whatnot so i mean it's your classic 60s look right mm. yeah after um, a little bit um our characters eventually stumble. They spot a boat and soon stumble across an actual, some sort of military-esque base. Where they, from afar, they watch Infant Islanders, which, funny plot convenience, um, that they're from Infant Island, uh, get escorted off this boat like, you know, they're, I mean, they're slaves. Um and there's barrels being rolled onto the boat where um, yeah x1 which is it's it's not really stated what x1 is but like it's sort of it's it's kind of implied that it's some sort of like nuclear material later on mm-hmm. though not really directly stated right see i always thought that it was like the juice what the yellow liquid mm-hmm. to see, like they were refilling the yellow liquid see that's what i thought at f- first but like then i mean i guess it could be that as well but also they never when this was they never really call it they never really say that the yellow liquid is x1 and when they right. actually used are trying to use the yellow liquid near the end of the film, they specifically call it the yellow liquid. So mm-hmm. would they, why is the leader of this, one of the leaders of this organization not calling it by its name when he was using it earlier? That's true. That's true. My only thing is later on, it's established that they're making nuclear. Well, I guess they're not, it's not established. It's assumed that they're making nuclear weapons, but yeah. So like maybe not I, so that's much. my interpretation is that the X one is like the nuclear material that they're creating. Right. And I mean they're it's trading it for the islanders at the moment, at least in this case. Or something like that. Something like that, at least. Right. Which 
see, I've never understood why they would be used. I mean, the Islanders don't do anything for the nuclear energy side. They're literally just there to make the yellow juice. Right. Which doesn't entirely make sense. Like, why would you have this, like, huge setup for nuclear energy and you would use slaves to make the berry juice? Also, what is with natives having berry juice that makes their monsters drunk and non like also, aggressive? Why would you why would you take the natives of Infant Island? Of all the <laughs> native islanders to enslave, why would you be <laughs> the ones with the god? With the literal god that you know is gonna could destroy all your setup in like an instant. Right. I, it could have been something where, like, because if I remember correctly, the original script was going to happen on Faroe Island or Lechi Island or Skull Island. Like, it was going to take I mean, place this island on... does take place on Lechi. This film is... So oh, that's Lechi right. Island. Although that's in right. the film, it's only called Devil Island. Or right. Island. Then is the one from King Kong Escapes, is that Mondo Island? I wouldn't remember. <laughs> I want to say it's Mondo. Like it was gonna take it was gonna take place on Kong's Island, whatever that would be. Um, so perhaps I mean, since it changes each Toho film, it doesn't really matter what it's called now, does it? <laughs> right. So perhaps maybe it was a thing where in the original script it was the natives of the island would be captured and they'd be forced to make the liquid to make Which would probably like they knew make how to more sense in all honesty for them, right? Like. Knowing how the, to uh, get rid of Ibra <laughs> and also right, at him. Right. Yeah, because, I mean, in theory, like, maybe the the fruit is, like, home. Like, its home is on the island. The islanders know how to make it to, like, push Ebra away, like, for whenever they needed to use the water and, like, swim or, like, use a boat or something. Um, and so, like, they knew of it. Kong probably got knocked out after his fight with Godzilla because if I remember correctly, the plan was to have it be in the same universe as Godzilla. And if it did well, they would renew the license and we would have a, like a series of King Kong Toho films. Yeah. Um, which in theory, I think probably would have made it so Godzilla kind of disappeared. <laughs> like if, if, if Kong proved to, you know, that would have been an interesting, like, the whole later half of the Showa era doesn't exist, and it was just King Kong films. That that's kind of an interesting like thought process, um, like a series of Japanese-made King Kong movies. Damn, um, I say it's a worst timeline. <laughs> um, so like, yeah, maybe like the originally it wasn't Infant Islanders; it was the Skull Islanders. the The berries grew there; they knew how to make it. The Red Bamboo was a terrorist organization that took over the island. They didn't realize Kong was there, and Kong, you know, was knocked out in, in a cave somewhere and whatnot. Um, that makes more sense than, you know, bringing people from another island to another island, and they just so happen to know Abira, how to make the berry juice, and the whole situation. Right, yeah. <laughs> It, it, it's definitely a bit of a convenient setup, all things considered. And you know that this—that's—I think that's a consistent trend in this film script. It's, there's a lot right. of conveniences and not really anything being all that 
developed either. Yeah. Because yeah. in Red Bamboo, we really don't know much of anything about them. Like, we have an idea that, you know, they're some sort of terrorist organization and, like, they're developing nuclear weapons, but it doesn't really go much further than that. Yeah, it's just there's not a lot not a lot established and everything's convenient. Like while this whole trade-off is happening, two of the islanders run away. They avoid all the gun gun bullets being shot at them. Gun bullets. <laughs> gun bullets. And they somehow come across a boat. Yeah, just a raft. Just a raft sitting, waiting for them to use. It's like, huh. It's, it's, convenient. it's almost like it was it's almost like the screenwriter gave it to them. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, again, if it was originally like Kong's Island and the natives lived there, it would make sense why there would be a raft sitting on the shore. So I, I it's just, it's obvious the film got kind of GVK'd. <laughs> Except, I mean, they still have a plot and they have characters and there's development, but there's a lot that's just like, yep, this happens. Yeah. Deal with it. But the point of this scene is essentially to establish that while boats in the area will be attacked by Ibra, if you have this special yellow liquid like the red bamboo are using, they can mask their ships in it and Ibra will ignore them. Right. And when we see Ibra, you know, attack the, the tiny, tiny raft, um, which I thought was kind of funny, um, Ebira like skewers the two people, and that's that's like the most violent thing we've seen in the Toho Godzilla series yet. Like the only other thing I can think of is either like the octopus grabbing people and throwing it from King Kong versus, or maybe when Godzilla like sh- like killed people using his atomic breath in Fifty Four. I mean, I feel like 54 portrays it a lot more. Yeah. Darker? Darker, yeah. But that also has to do with the tone cinematography the and, and the tone, yeah. yeah. So, but I mean, either way, this is like the darkest thing the franchise has had. And honestly, this is the darkest it gets for a long time. Um, up until Hedera. Like, it took them a full, like, five years to go this dark again. Which is funny because, like, the rest of this film really isn't dark or particularly, mm-hmm. like, violent. <laughs> right. I mean, like, honestly, like, some of the previous films, like Ghidorah and even, like, Godzilla vs. Megalon, have more, like, actual, like, brutal violence with the humans, you know, shooting each other and very visibly bleeding. Mm hmm. Um,. Right, the the violence, the human on human violence increases. Uh, almost, I would say, like huh, maybe following this movie, because Son of Godzilla does have some pretty intense moments, uh, with like the high fevers and the characters like going mad, mm. but not not nearly as much. I mean, destroy all monsters, you get a little more violence. I mean, there's some like actual scenes of people bleeding and whatnot and and people killing themselves, which is, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, I, yeah, now that you say it, that's, it is, this is, this whole sequence is kind of jarring. I don't know if I'd call it jarring. It's just a bit more violent than, I guess, the rest of the film. 
Right. It's also worthy to note that the main I, I guy the is that the infant island is being trafficked <laughs> to right. wives. It's also worthy to note that the person leading this operation is none other than Akihito Hirata, yes. who is wearing an eye patch again, but on the opposite eye. Yeah, an intentional inversion of <laughs> his character in 54. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but following this scene, we, I mean, uh, Kumi Mizuno's character does get away during this whole scuffle. Yeah, she escapes. Uh, she meets up with that main cast and makes friends with them before um, the Red Bamboo go searching for them and, and a, a, a fair bit of chasing ensues. But we're also, before they start the chase, we're intercut with scenes on Infant Island, right? Well, yeah, around like after this chase is when that starts. Gotcha. Once, gotcha. They, once they escape the red bamboo and enter like the cave then kumi mizuno basically explains that hey yuda your brother's alive he's on infant island for some reason for some reason somehow somehow everybody else gets on lechi island but he went to infant island yeah i thought i like like at the beginning of the movie i thought the implication was like like him being lost oh he's probably been attacked by ibra and is a slave to like the rest of the internals it does like because i couldn't remember <laughs> i didn't remember much of the plot of this movie in like the first half but yeah no this is where we cut to yeah mothra on infant island oh boy sleeping <laughs> oh boy i see you tell know. me that we've fallen from grace without telling me we fell from grace <sighs> see the matte painting is okay Mothra herself, the puppet. Mothra looks like Awful. she got roughed up by a couple of dogs. <laughs> um, but even she more so than her that, color. <laughs> yeah, her color's gone. But even more than that, the set. So in Mothra versus Godzilla, Ghidorah the Three Headed Monster, and even in, in Mothra nineteen sixty one, the sets for Infant Island are, I mean, they're they're dark and they're kind of boding. But they're beautiful. The sets are huge. Like, they're beautiful sets. Um, The place where they worship Mothra is this beautiful, like, temple. Um, The costumes are extravagant. And the music, if Akube had picked, is is very grandiose and and very beautiful. And it it does definitely feel foreign. it, It gives you a foreign feel. But now they've kind of changed. I mean, Infant Island now looks a lot like Skull Island or Pharaoh Island from King Kong versus. Yeah, it's it's it it just isn't the same Infant Island as in the previous films. And I mean, in some regards, that might have been intentional because, like, uh, so from what I understand, so the Mothra twins in this film. Previously, they had been played by the Peanut Twins, but they've been recast in this film. I had initially, like in the past, assumed that oh, they were recast because like you know, Yumi, Yuki, and Emi Ito just didn't want to play the f- characters anymore. But apparently, like this was like a casting decision on Toho's end, not and not because like 
they couldn't get the peanuts back. They just specifically wanted new actors for this film. So I'm going to agree with you and then I'm going to ask a question. Mm -hmm. Because I've heard that the whole reason, because a lot of the cast in this film is, is new, fresh blood. There's, of course, your Toho, like the main characters are fresh, but a lot of your supporting characters and your implied lead are all Toho alumni, but the whole crew was meant to be kind of fresh meat besides Sekizawa, um, who had, you know, been working with Toho since Varen. Um, so they were kind of wanting a fresh new take, a fresh Godzilla, you know, bringing new and younger people into the franchise, which it worked. That was the main audience that did go see it. But why? Like, I, I'm sorry, but these peanut, the Shobajin in this are not it. Yeah. <laughs> they are not it. Yumi and Emi Ito are beautiful. Oh, Shobajin. <laughs> and yes, like, there's a reason that after them, they only appeared once in my book. Like, those two were iconic, and we have not hit that iconicness since. Right. Yeah, I I don't know. Like, there's no real other contextual information for that decision. I mean, maybe they wanted new faces just for the sake of new faces. Maybe I don't know. Maybe it was. Could it have been cheaper to get younger actors and people? Was it like? Were I was gonna suggest like were like the. I believe it's the Red Bambi is the name of the pair in this film. Mm -hmm. um, were they biggest stars at the time? I mean, I don't think they were because I can't find a lot of information on them. I was, so the Peanuts, the reason they appeared was, so Mothra, 1961, was a co-production between Columbia and Toho. Columbia was a subdivision of, of Sony. And Sony had the Peanuts signed to their record label. Ah. Or, or Columbia, whichever one. Their record label was who the Peanuts worked for. And part of the deal was they would provide the Peanuts as actresses that would do music for the movie and you know back then and i'm sure there's still i mean it's yeah there's still situations and instances where that's how it how you get original music in, in films is who's attached to your record label um but what what happened is they signed on for a three-picture deal and that was through the the contract toho had stated with columbia that they would be appear in three films and they would perform music. That's how we got Mothra, then Mothra versus Godzilla, and then Ghidra the Three-Headed Monster. After Ghidra the Three-Headed Monster, that contract was up, and of course nothing happened in, in 65, so there was no reason to renew it. But I would imagine they would have like went for that in 66, but from what you're telling me, that's not the case. So maybe it was a time production budget thing. Like, because they, they were pretty big. Yeah. They were pretty big. 
Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I'm trying to get at is maybe that's why there's a lot of like these younger, most like well-known actors. Because really the only like big stars here are, yeah, your supporting cast and then Takarada and Mizuno. Right. The ones who were, you know, typically contracted by Toho, well, were Toho actors, so they would appear in whatever. And sometimes it would just be they were on set for a day. Yeah. I mean, I heard that one of the main actors, I don't remember which one it is. I should have written it down. But um, I heard that possibly one of them might not have actually been properly employed with Toho. Hmm. Apparently. At it's, least, I, I don't know how true that actually is, mind you. That was I'm going... Wikipedia, so that you know, the the reliability of that, very questionable. So take that for what you will. I'm going to guess that that's probably Toru Watanabe, who played Ryota. I, I, uh, I want to say it was him. It, it was one of like those main... It was one of the main ones, yeah. Because he only appeared in one other movie, and it was not a Kaiju Tokusatsu. Like, this was his one of two films I, I could it find. It was probably him, yeah, then. But no, I, I didn't... I, I mean, Mothra and the Mothra lore and stories have always never been my favorite. Um, but this one definitely is just awful. Like, I, I cannot stand this no, I don't this Mothra. This. I, I don't care for this interpretation of Infant Island. I think it's the lamest. <laughs> mm-hmm. It just kind of doesn't feel like Mothra. Right. And maybe this was one of those sets that was built to be like Pharaoh Island. Like, maybe that was, I mean, I keep saying maybe this, maybe that. But they did, like, they had everything ready for production. They just didn't have the script done and finalized. Um, So maybe the reason it does kind of look like this is where King Kong would be worshipped is because that was the original intent. Maybe. It's just not enough information on it, I guess. But transitioning back into the story of Ebira... We we get some more, you know, plotting and ploying and intercut with uh, the red bamboo doing red bamboo things. Um, our our main characters finally decide on a plan and they're trying to figure out who's going to go. Everybody but two of them agrees to go. And one of them trips and sneezes and his ear lands on a rock and he hears a don't don't. which then we start getting a very i love sato score for him it's it's very ifakube-esque but it's also not and the the heartbeat is none other than obviously godzilla which why he's here why is it just (laughs) strewn about in a cave that makes him look like he hasn't been out for years i mean they basically have they have to wake him up for with lightning which we'll talk about the problems with that because he's been presumably sleeping here for a while Mm -hmm. is he in hibernation (laughs) (laughs) something like that um but they're horrified by Godzilla, which, I mean, tracks. Fair enough. And so they all agree to go do the plan, which is a bush gag. Mm-hmm. So this is where you really start to see the spy-esque of this film. 
Oh yeah. And I kind of want I wanted to I wanted to stop here um and kind of talk about this. So James Bond is one of the biggest franchises in the world. Um I mean it's it's up there with Godzilla in terms of consistency. Yeah, and movie counts. Mhm. But James Bond was very popular in the late 60s or yeah. early to mid 60s. Yeah. And, um, I mean hell, uh, some of Toho had worked with the production companies on the James Bond series with one of the films, you know, using Toho sets and even Toho actors from the Godzilla series. Right, and that was from You Only Live Twice, which was released in 1967, the year after Evira. Yeah. Uh, the film prior, Thunderball, was uh, very popular to my understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, so much so that in 1965, there was a Toho James Bond knockoff. Mm-hmm. titled uh, 100 Shot, 100 Killed, also known as, is it Iron Finger? Yeah. Which a person by the name of Mr. Bullseye <laughs> is our James Bond-esque character. And who plays this character? None other than Akira Takarada. And it was, to my understanding, it actually did very well. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a very popular film, and it was it was Takarada playing more of a comedic character. It did well, and Toho was wanting to do a sequel to the film, um, titled, and this is kind of interesting, the original plan was to have a film uh, titled Big Duel in the South Seas. <laughs> um. So people have said that this is basically a spiritual uh, Ebira is a spiritual sequel to Iron Finger. The film did well. They wanted to do a sequel. The script in question was titled Big Duel in the South Seas, which is what the subtitle of the film we're talking about in Japan was given. And Takarada does play a kind of spy-ish character. Um if I remember right, Takarada really liked how this character was a little bit darker, but also comedic. And then, you know, he, you had his heroic, serious characters, and you had his, you know, spy character, which was more comedic. Um, he really liked this character. Mm. I mean, he would um, eventually return the next year in Iron Finger's actual sequel, Golden Eyes, which was also directed by Jun Fukuda. Right, and Jun Fukuda also directed uh, 100 Shot, 100 Kills. Um, which, real quick, Golden Eyes is the name of a James Bond movie too, right? I think it's Golden Finger. Eye. Golden Eye from 1995. Yeah, oh, yeah. The, it's, it's oh, a yeah, uh, James Bond movie. <laughs> One of the most iconic ones, is it not? <laughs> I'm pretty sure it is. Yeah, they named a whole video game after it. But no, the the so now with this context, so they were wanting to, you know, take influence from uh, James Bond, which was becoming very popular. They were producing James Bond parodies, and this took some of the script elements from that film 
and you know they it's basically the same creative team behind Iron Finger. Suddenly, this movie and its influences from uh, James Bond and like the music and whatnot suddenly become a lot more understandable, right? Uh, which further confirms that this film was always intended to be a comedy, a parody of sorts of the spy genre. Um, and this Bush sequence, which is hilarious, by the way, is one of those sequences. And then Takarada's uh, hobby of, you know, making the skeleton key and picking lots locks uh, comes into, you know, importance here because they get to break into the into the uh, the base and do some snooping. And nobody questions. He tells them not to question his hobbies and they don't. <laughs> I mean, hey, it is a fun it is a fun running gag in the film, honestly. And at this point, that's what it really becomes, is just a running gag. Yeah, with him just deflecting all the all the things like, oh, clearly you guys have never, never spent any time being chased by the police. I'm moving on. <laughs> Not to brag, but I have a hunch when I'm being hunted. I'm getting <laughs> what I'm doing now. See, my hunch was right. <laughs> yeah. But... Yeah, no. They they snoop around, realize that they're in like a they're in like a heavy water plant facility and that the red bamboo are probably, you know, creating or producing like radioactive material for nuclear weaponry. Right, which I mean this establishes the anti-nuclear themes that yeah. are typical in Godzilla movies, which this one's kind of interesting. I love the whole, like, a terrorist organization's building atomic bombs on a resort, like a remote island. That's kind of cool. I kind of like that. Yeah. Yeah, eventually they get caught, but thankfully with some smoke bombs they found earlier, they uh, managed to make an escape where we get some more comedic moments with uh, Takarada and one of the other guys hiding the other characters behind some like metal plates while they pretend to be like just lab workers. But their plan doesn't work out and they're chased after um, Takarada, one of the college guys and Mizuno's character escape. One yeah. of them gets caught and then one gets On his a... foot wrapped up in a balloon. And then he somehow ends up on Infant Island. What convenience. <laughs> it's so it's such a funny moment in the script <laughs> and like he doesn't fall like the balloon literally just like ooh, like right in the middle of all of them Both and it's like wrong grip too to, I mean he ties himself up a bit but still <laughs> he just plot convenience got a plot it, convenience yeah it's just this should cool. really be called Godzilla, Ebira, Mothra, the big duel of plot convenience in the South Seas. Yeah, but Mothra does like nothing. <laughs> you know, now that you say that, it makes sense why Mothra gets third billing in the kaiju. Yeah, she does nothing for two thirds of the movie. Now, I, I forgot to bring this up, but I think I heard somewhere that reportedly... The reason Mothra was included was at the time Mothra was a very popular character. Yeah. So that's why they threw her in here, kind of like a GMK-ified version of Ebira. But her role is such a reduced, irrelevant 
role, it's like, why? Why even include her? So that you can include her name on the title and poster. Fair enough. Fair enough. Hey, it's good marketing value. But yeah, the yeah, our trio that are still not captured or on uh, an infant island side quest escape back to the cave and eventually plan to wake up Godzilla. You mean release the most destructive weapon on Earth? <laughs> yes. But, yeah, so they, they use uh, Mizuno's character's copper wiring she found, hook yeah. it up to the sword, and they electrify Godzilla and bring Three him back to life. Pops, mind you. Right, right. Um, meanwhile, on the Infant Island side quest that you've dubbed it, and we're going to call it that, um, the two brothers plan on going back to Lechi Island and... Uh, Save everybody somehow. Yeah. The Mof- With what weapons, I don't know, but they're going to do it. <laughs> the Mofra twins tell you, tell them, like, you're not going to understand this yet, but trust us, make a big net. <sighs> and then they just refuse to elaborate. Plot. Plot got a plot. So, Godzilla's woken up with electricity, right? Yeah. But... In the previous film, Mothra vs. Godzilla, it's established Godzilla is not immune to electricity, and it actually hurts him. I mean, in King Kong vs. Godzilla, it's just straight up his weakness. And they establish that also in 54, saying the high-tension wires will slow him down. They say it'll stop him, but it does slow him down. So up until this movie, Godzilla's like anti-electricity. But now suddenly that's how what you use to... Elect, like bring him back to life mm-hmm. and then later on in Mechagodzilla that's how he gets power ups Yeah, I I love the inconsistency with, with Godzilla and electricity mm-hmm. but also and you told me off cast that you didn't this you finally connected the dots on the King Kong thing because in 62 it's established that King Kong gains power from electricity and lightning so it would make sense why King Kong would be in a cave and they would use lightning to wake him up. I mean, yeah, only just like I, I made the connection that the reason they use lightning to wake up Godzilla is because it was a King Kong script originally. Which I guess Toho liked the lightning idea. Yeah. Which originally that was for Frankenstein. Yeah, yeah. No wonder why this movie was called Frankenstein in Germany. I mean, wasn't this the first one to be dubbed Frankenstein? I think I it was. I think it was, yeah. Yeah, I mean, God, such a weird concept for Godzilla. I mean, it's not, again, the the there's clearly um, some, like, blueprints for a King Kong story in this. Mm-hmm. And one of them comes up here in a little bit, too. Um, because as they're waking up Godzilla... The two brothers are in the area where the giant claw appears, which, I mean, their boat gets wrecked, but they don't die because, look out world, you better run, because ready or not, here he comes. (laughs) Godzilla emerges and engages in the great duel of the South Seas with Ebera. 
Which I also want to say during the whole scene with the brothers meeting the giant claw, there's no music and it's awful. Yeah, it's it's not as effective as the as the OAS scene of the giant claw. No, and I if I remember correctly, there's not music during this first fight, or am I wrong? Is it the second fight there's no music? Don't remember. I don't recall there being music during the first fight, I guess. That's right, because it's just them hitting the the rock back and forth and there's no yeah. music, yeah. Which I don't know why suddenly Sato shuts up here. It definitely makes the fight. I mean, the fight's brutal. Like, there's, it's a pretty brutal fight. <laughs> um, even though Ebira is literally one of the worst Godzilla opponents ever, because like he uses atomic breath and like knocks him out pretty bad. But there's no music here. The fight's kind of bland. I mean, it's funny. Like the whole volleyball scene is funny. Um. And it is a brutal fight, but for the most part, it's kind of boring without the music. I don't know. I thought it was still a pretty fun scene overall. I, 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 I think I definitely, the volleyball bit goes on a, a tad too long, like a tad. couple seconds too long. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a fun fight overall. I don't like the part where they go into the water, though. That, I will agree, is it's nothing great. <laughs> right. But this movie goofy. does. It is a little funny when Godzilla just punches him with the boulder, though, underwater. Yes, yes. I was like, "That's a weird scene." Okay, and, and, and the framing of that shot as well just makes it even goofier. I think. Yeah, because isn't it? It starts off as a medium shot with Godzilla with the rock, and then it cuts to like a close up as well. Yeah, very awkward. Like he's sitting down, right? And he's just like reaching out with his. <laughs> and it cuts to a close-up of just the rock just hitting his head and then it cuts back and he's like drops the rock and gets up <laughs> it's like what are we doing why is godzilla just sitting at the bottom of the ocean with this rock in his hand just hitting the head of <laughs> bonk 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 uh, and it's worth mentioning that because of the uh, reduced budget, the Godzilla suit in this film during this sequence is just the Dyson Sogoji suit from the previous film. Right, right. Although it is worth noting that if you notice, Godzilla leans forward a lot more in this movie mm-hmm. than in the previous film. The reason is because the head has been reattached. Um, and so, like, if he just stands up, taught like straight normally the head will actually be looking too far up and so that's why nakajima is constantly like leaning forward during this so this was shot after the uh oh it would have it would have had to have been it was shot after i think this is shot before the like head was taken for um 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 Ultraman. ultraman yeah i think this is shot before that um, why I mean, would the, the head be detached? I I don't know. I mean, maybe they just like for storage, perhaps storage reasons is my guess. I don't really know why it was detached, but if you actually look at photos of it and you compare it to the Dysensor Goji, you can tell the head position is different. Hmm. And and as well as that, in 
in these earlier scenes with like that head, it also, the suit is in a lot better condition as well. Because, because of this water fight <laughs> and all the scenes that the suit spends in the water, the suit actually gets very heavily damaged. So much so that near the end of the film, you can actually see like the armpits are just falling apart. Mm-hmm. Like literally like everyone points to that scene in Godzilla vs. Gigan where that suit, uh, the, the Destroyer Monster suit is falling apart. You can mm-hmm. see the exact same thing happening in the last right. scene of this film. Right, no, when Godzilla jumps off, I mean, you can see the, the air pockets. Yeah, you can see the, the... You can see the air pockets in, like, the neck area, and but you can really see, if you pay attention, you can see right before he jumps, there's a there's literally, like, a tear in the armpits. Yeah, no, this suit was screwed. Yeah. I mean, and, like, later on in the film, near, during the ending, once they've got the... The second, the second head that was made as like a replica of an attempted replica of the Dysenso Gochi head, it's that looks awful. Um, the suit has also just kind of lost its form as well, mm-hmm. which I think might be because they removed the padding. Because it's said that there's less padding in the suit for this film Hmm. and then combine that with the damage from the water filming i presume that's why it's losing its shape now correct me if i'm wrong but did they reuse this suit for the water scenes in 67 and 72 yeah yeah and it looks not not in 72 not in 72 in 72 that's the uh, son of godzilla suit Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Because I know they both look. I mean, this, I, this suit is retired in Hedera. Because it's used, is it in, used in Hedera? Yeah, it's used when uh, Hedera uses, like. The sludge? He, yeah. Okay. Oh, yes, that's right. That's right. Yes. Uh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So. And some scenes of, like, destroyer monsters as well. Uh. When he destroys Tokyo, like when when he first like emerges from the water. That's right. That's right. This yeah, because this to water suit for a little bit <laughs> because it already had the water damage. <laughs> What's a little more going to do to this thing? Yeah. <laughs> but so after the fight with Ebira, that's you know kind of awkward. That's okay. It's a fun. I, um, I think it's a fun sequence. We go back to our cast trying to figure out a plan to fight the red bamboo when they're being listened. And as I previously mentioned, Takarada makes a joke about knowing when he's hunted and then they find out they're being tracked. They immediately get shot up. (laughs) And as they're running away, uh, Kumi Mizuno, Kumi Mizuno, Runs into Godzilla. Yes. He's just chilling on a part of the island. And honestly, the island's not that big. Wouldn't you be able to find Godzilla pretty quick? <laughs> he uh, is uncharacteristically interested in her. <laughs> he just... I'm trying to come up with a funny joke here, but everything I can think of is creepy. 
<laughs> and then, and after just observing her for a while while she's too scared to move, he just takes a nap. Just in the same spot, he just closes his eyes and just yeah goes to sleep. Pops a squat. <laughs> and then they escape, but while they're escaping, the giant condor comes out of nowhere. Up for some reason. Which, this is arguably one of the ins- craziest fights Godzilla dealt with in the show era. This is just one of the worst fights as well. <laughs> I mean, the editing is awful. Like, it's, like, all over the place and just out of nowhere and... I mean, honestly, yeah. I don't blame the editor because really what was there to work with, to be honest, it's just like the giant condor, condor like tapping its beak against his head a couple times. <laughs> right. And, and then, then he, he like, I guess he's maybe clawing at Godzilla with his like claws. <laughs> his tiny little his claws. Talons. Yeah. <laughs> Now, wasn't this a Rodan yes, puppet? Yes, it was a 30-centimeter Rodan puppet that would also be, or was also used in Ultra Q. Mm-hmm. That, I think this is after it was used for Ultra Q, I want to say. I would imagine yeah, so. It would, they it would have been. It would have been. Because Ultra Q finished by July. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it would have been. Because was, this was used for Litra in Ultra Q. And then they would later re un- they would undo everything on this and reuse it for destroy all monsters, would they not? Would they? I don't remember. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they do. I'm pretty sure they do. Maybe. Maybe. I don't remember. Which after this fight that lasts about thirty seconds and the giant condor gets burned and, and exists. falls into the water. I I don't know why this scene exists outside of just have another monster show up for some reason. Well, here's my biggest issue. As soon as this is done, they repeat the scene. Yeah, with except the red bamboo fighters. <laughs> with music that makes no sense and is so out of place. Because it's like this happy, cheery, like, exotic song. And it's like, why are we playing this? Yeah. No, it's really bizarre. <laughs> and it, it it is quite literally just the same scene twice, but with fighter jets instead of the giant condor. And ever so slightly better. And see, it I would get this I would get these scenes if they were spaced out in the film. Yeah. Yeah, no. I I I can understand it if they're spaced out, but why are they happening one after another? What Right, it definitely it definitely feels like maybe like they were trying to figure out, okay, so we we could either do a giant bird or we could do fire jets, and that's how Godzilla gets distracted. Let's do like they shot both in there, like, let's do both. Let's throw them both yeah, we in need, here. We need them both in here so that we can keep the kids entertained because Godzilla. <laughs> that's my best guess for the thought process behind this. Cause otherwise there is I, I don't see why the condor is here. I feel like it would make more sense to have the red bamboo attack. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, the condor's not even... Why is the condor here? <laughs> Just why? Why does it exist? That is most of this movie. Why does this exist? <laughs> why are we doing this? 
But yeah. What is this? Their attack uh, aggravates Godzilla and he goes on a little rampage on the, across their base. Which is funny because they were told to stay because they were going to send reinforcements so they can finish doing their job on creating nuclear weapons. Yeah. And then they're forced to retreat because their fighter jets did not help. They made the problem worse. <laughs> yeah. And this is where we're established the ticking time bomb cliche. Yeah. Oh, which we should also mention that prior to this, the um, the guy who had been captured by the Red Bamboo, Nita, was made to be a slave alongside the Infant Islanders, but he gave them the bright idea, hey, this yellow liquid you're making, why the hell don't we just make a phony? Right, right. Now... I want to bring up, um, since we're talking about at least one character, this is something I do appreciate about this film and its story. If this would have been made in America and written in America, I guarantee you one of the side characters would have would have like transitioned to the red bamboo side hmm. and like double crossed the friends to create a problem. Only to like know what character it would have been Takaradas. Takaradas, yeah. No, because his character is perfect for that. Yeah, but they keep him as a like good guy throughout, which I appreciate. I love that. Like there, there is a spot and a place for that story concept of somebody going to the dark side only to double cross them and go to the you know the good side, the light side. Yeah, but I don't think this that would fit this film. I mean, I think it would work. I mean, maybe if there was like actual development for the red bamboo, mm -hmm. it could work. But as is, they're like, they are a bare bones antagonist. Right. I mean, in a way, Takarata kind of plays the Han Solo of this story. Yeah. But actually, while we're speaking of like this story, one thing that is interesting in contrast to some of Sekizawa's previous scripts with this film is how, with like in Ghidorah, for example, the monster and human plots in those film in that film is very divorced from each other, but they tend to mm -hmm. like inter intersect at certain points. Mm -hmm. This film, it's very much one plot line that the that like both parties are attached to. Right. Which isn't it, it's, it's a fun change of pace from those previous films that I really right. appreciate. Yeah, and I, I think part of that too is Toho's attempt to not only decrease the budget, but also change the setting. Because right. it's all on an island, so like they're required to like work within the confines of that island with like occasionally being off of it for the infant island side quest and the establishment of like the situation going on that's in the first 15 minutes. Uh, but outside of the 15 minutes and the like probably 10 minutes on infant Island. So 25 minutes total, the rest of the 80, the rest of the 87 minute time runtime is spent entirely Lechi Island, which does end up with that, you know, the human characters are intertwined with the kaiju, the kaiju are intertwined with the human characters. And this is a great example. It does have one Sekizawa thing where 
the humans impact the kaiju and the kaiju impact the humans, right? Um, like King Ghidorah, the three-headed monster, Rodan drops Godzilla on a power line, and that saves Princess Salno from being assassinated with high-voltage electricity. Right, which sort of happens in a similar thing here when uh, the characters are in you know, the Red Bamboo's base and a scientist is threatening them. We're going to blow up the space. The whole island's going to explode like a nuke and just be gone. And then, you know, Godzilla, you know, destroys a bit of the base and the scientist ends up getting killed. Mm -hmm. Like that's the Sekizawa cliche. Right. But again, it's, this film is more divorced from that, like, just having the two, it be two separate plots that intertwine. Rather, it's just one straightforward narrative in this film. Right, which... And I will say, I think for the most part, that's how they started approaching these films. Yeah, um, from what I recall, yeah. Outside of, like, I I think Damn kind of doesn't. It kind of goes along with the two side stories. Uh, no, really, because the monsters are kind of just under alien control for most of the movie. That's right, that's true. I'm trying to think what... I think it wouldn't be until the Heisei era at this point then that the humans and the kaiju aren't directly intertwined. Mm. Because Terror of Mechagodzilla Katsura is quite literally Mechagodzilla. Yeah, Um, it controls Titanosaurus as well. mm -hmm. King Caesar is awoken by the human characters. It's all from a, like, ancient uh, legend and, like, prophecy and the human characters, and then, you know, the aliens are controlling Mechagodzilla and whatnot. Gigan, the, the human characters play the tape, and that's what brings Godzilla and Anguirus to fight Ghidorah and Gigan. I mean, I um, guess that's kind of the closest one to having, like, that classic sort of Sekizawa, like, approach to, like, Ghidorah, because the kaiju mm-hmm. are doing that off their own agency, really, rather than any like actions that the humans are intentionally doing to summon them, you know? Mm-hmm. So I guess that's kind of the closest ish. Right. But outside of that, I think, would it be 84? It's been a long time since I've seen 84 before they would kind of, I mean, 84 is more like a 54, more like 54 in its approach, really. Right. So where Godzilla is like just this thing that we can't stop and we're trying to prevent. Yeah, pretty much. So maybe Biolante? I guess, maybe. But I now that you bring that up, I guess that kind of is why I do there's something about the the early 60s early to that mid like Astro Monster. Right. where it feels different. Like the human characters have their own story, the kaiju have their own story and they're intertwined periodically through the film and that's something i love like that that is a story concept i think is really good um the humans it works in Ghidorah. (laughs) yes uh, absolutely um i'm trying to think a prime example of that type of story yes um callet says it best humans humans deal with humans monsters fight monsters i think is how he says it and in the third act, they somehow find a way to intertwine with each other. 
which I think is really good. Like, I love that. Con- that's such a cool concept because now, like, it's either they're this looming force of nature that we have to fight or we're directly impacting their story and what they're doing, Um, which, I mean, that follows in line with the idea of, like, we're the problem, like, we're the reason that this is all happening. But like in Ghidorah, the three-headed monster, we we don't we're not we don't do anything to wake Rodan up. We don't do anything to get Godzilla back here. We don't do anything for Ghidorah landing. The only things that the humans directly do is call Mothra, tell Mothra to tell the Godzilla and Rodan to come together, and they deny that. Only later do they finally work together. And that's a beautiful scene that made me cry in theaters, but I'm not going to talk about that. But you just did. I just did. But no, like, that is such a good way of storytelling, but you are absolutely right. This film does approach it differently, and it is kind of, it's a very nice nice breath of fresh air. Yeah. But I will say, during all of this, there is the whole... The King Time Bomb thing and Godzilla, you know, destroying the island, the red bamboo, get off the island, use the 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 fake uh, yellow liquid, the fake yellow liquid. Um, our main characters are either trapped or trying to get off the island and get stuff figured out. Try to build a a big net, a big net. All the while, Godzilla and Ebra fight each other after the red bamboo are slaughtered by Ebra. <laughs> And honestly, all of this does feel a little anticlimactic. Ah, I didn't didn't really get that feeling from that, honestly. I I don't know. I just... I don't don't think the Red Bamboo were developed enough for anything to really feel anticlimactic, (laughs) to be honest. But for me, it's the whole, like... So they establish a ticking time bomb plot cliché which is to try and build suspense. And the music that Sato does is clearly made to create suspense as well. It is such a drag. Because, like, the fight, but the final fight between Godzilla and Ebira is very just bland. I mean, Ebira is one of Godzilla's worst villains in the Showa era. Like, Ebira does not do anything to Godzilla at all. I mean, I I have no issue with him. I never really got the idea that the film is trying to make him seem like he is this big evil bad. Well, no. He's just blocking the exit for our characters, essentially, because they can't... But Godzilla dispatches him, like, in 30 seconds. Yeah. I don't see what's wrong with that. It's fun. It's just... it, it. it's very obvious that Godzilla was way more powerful than Kong. And that created an issue with the whole Ebira thing. Like, honestly, it almost feels like a second fight here is unnecessary. Yeah. I mean, you could have easily had him not reappear, to be honest, after that first fight. Yeah. After and have, had- like, Godzilla kill the red bamboo or something. Like, that would have worked perfectly fine. Yeah. But I, I, uh, I think the moment of Godzilla just ripping off... <laughs> Both of Ebra's claws is pretty fun. It's that is the funnest sequence in the entire in <laughs> both fights. That's the most fun. And then like he like 
gets the two and like opens and closes it. The only and, part like, where I'd say it really kind of the ending kind of drags is when like Godzilla comes back on shore just to attack Mothra. Yeah, and uh, since we're talking about Mothra, during all of this, it's intercut with the infant islanders doing their song, trying to wake up Mothra. Finally, wakes up in the Mothra. It's eight minutes of the film, or not even eight, like five minutes, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And it's so boring. And I think that's why I think that the whole ticking time bomb thing drags is because the Mothra thing takes way too long. And that's something later Showa struggles with because the same issue happens with King Caesar. Like the song goes on a minute and a half way too long. Yeah. Um, Mothra taking like even then King nine- Caesar's eventual appearance is a lot more satisfying, I'd say. Because of Teriyoshi Nakano. Yeah, that's true. And just, yeah, how banger that finale is. Mm-hmm. But no, Mothra just kind of wakes up and flies off. And, you know, we get our main character. Godzilla. Right, yeah, because our main character's building that. Mothra picks them up. Godzilla walks over to Mothra, and Mothra just, like, slaps him and then flies off. Yeah. And, like, as. But I will say, as soon as Godzilla, like, rampages i feel like the movie just kind of stops what like across like when he's like rampaging the red bamboo after he rampages the red bamboo's base fights ebira the movie just stops like there's nothing left like there there's like there's no threat the ticking time bomb thing is the only thing but because they're building a net because they know mothra will come it's like we're just waiting on Mothra to get here. Mm. It, it's it like that go on for very long, so I don't really see it being a major issue. You could cut easily three minutes out of this ending. I mean, maybe a minute or two, but it's a very quick ending, all things considered. This is like the last five minutes of the movie. I think you could cut this ending in half and it would be a little better. Maybe? I don't know. It's not really a lot to cut. (laughs) But Mothra does pick them up, fights Godzilla, and they fly off, and they're like, oh no, Godzilla, get off the island! Ah!" And Godzilla just takes his sweet time, like, jumping off of this cliff. Bro's not worried. I mean, like, here's the thing. To be fair, he is a creature of the atom bomb, so he has no reason to be worried. Right, he's gonna be fine either way. But he does jump off the island. The island blows up, and with then stock we footage see... from the crazy adventure. I was wondering if that was stock footage. See, I had no clue it was stock footage, but apparently it is. See, it looked too complex and complicated to be from this movie. If I'm going to be honest, true, too big of a miniature to be used to be from this film. Yeah, and so. Our main characters are on in the baskets and they see Godzilla swimming off, which I mean, we get it's kind of a, it's a nice sequence. It's a nice sequence here. And then we get Mothra, an animated Mothra flying to Infant Island. The end. And that's it. We're done. Da, 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 the end. <laughs> <sighs> so that's Godzilla, Ebira, Mothra, big duel in the South Seas. Yeah. 
Now, this movie was also shown on Mystery Science Theater 3000. It was the first Godzilla movie to be shown on there. Um, I haven't seen that episode. I, I oh, mean, my. I feel like this makes sense why they would riff it. There's a lot of stuff you could easily riff in this movie. Oh, yeah, definitely. But in saying that, yeah, I actually, as someone who's never cared much for this movie, as someone who's never liked this movie, I actually had a fair lot of fun this time around. Yeah, I mean, the film is made to be comedy more so than like past Godzilla films, like I said. I mean, it's big. I mean, it's not big, but... Not big. It's it's It's... It's colorful, it's fun, you know, the last 10 minutes I think are, you know... I, I'll agree the last slow. 15 minutes is the worst part of the movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but everything up until that, like, moves very fast. Yeah. Um, it's not the most entertaining, but it is a fun watch. Yeah. And it's it's definitely not the worst. Like, we've already covered worse Godzilla movies than this. Yeah. And it's not Fukuda's worst either, I think. Um, at least I think. I could be wrong. I, I mean, haven't... having recently rewatched Megalon, I can, I can vouch that this is not his worst film. <laughs> we might have different opinions on Megalon. I don't know. I'd have to rewatch it. Um, but I will say, for the most part, this is fun. I mean, it's, not, it's far from the best for Fukuda. It's far from the best for the Showa era. But yeah, it but is it an like entertaining an watch. Here. Yes. So yeah, there, is some, there is some beautiful cinematography in this film as well mm-hmm. at times. Yeah, no, the cinematography and like the colors, like this is a very colorful film. Yeah. The production design is okay. The the red bamboo's base isn't the best, but it's not terrible. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's it's okay. This is an okay movie. Now Fukuda hated this movie. Yeah, but Fukuda hated all of his Godzilla films. Up until, like, right before he died because he saw that so many people liked what he did. Yeah, but I mean, I I, I think he kind of hated the production of this film. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they kept cutting stuff and kept forcing him to do things, and it just... All the it, while, it, he just wanted to work on his TV show script. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, Abby Rose okay. It's all right. It's not as bad as I as I remember, which I, you know what, if that's my takeaway, I'm happy I now look at this film in a more positive light. I kind of understand what people see in Ebra now. See, I think I've always, well, maybe I, I like it a little more now. I don't know. Um, I've definitely, I mean, I've never viewed this film as like, oh, I'm going to go watch Ebira. No, same. Like, I've, I've never said I've that. never kept for this movie. This is like the most I've actually this is by far the most I've enjoyed this film. Right. And honestly, I might venture to say I think the best thing about this movie for me is picking apart what probably was in the King Kong script and what was rewritten. <laughs> just because I think that's such a fun thing to do with this is just that that script analysis. Right. <laughs> but do you do you want me to transition into the cast and the crew, and then we'll finish with our ranking and, and whatnot? Okay. So, directed by Jun Fukuda, who is assistant director on Rodan, and then director on Secret of the Talesian, Son of Godzilla, Operation Misty, Mystery, which he co-wrote some episodes, Kanto 55, The Great Outer Space Adventure, Godzilla vs. Gigan, Godzilla vs. Megalon, which he co-wrote, 
Zone Fighter, which he co-wrote some episodes. Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla, which he co-wrote. Submersion of Japan. Espy. The War in Space, which we have covered. And uh, he did some episodes of the 1978 series Monkey. He also wrote Horrors of the Wolf, a Wolf Guy adaptation Toho did. The film was produced by Tomiyuki Tanaka. The film was written by Shinichi Sekizawa, who wrote Giant Monster Varen, Battle in Outer Space, The Secret of the Talesian, Mothra, King Kong vs. Godzilla, The Lost World of Simbad, Atragon, Mothra vs. Godzilla, Dogra, Ghidra, The Three-Headed Monster, Invasion of Astro Monster, Ultraman, Kaiju Buska. The composer, Marusu Sato, did Godzilla Raids again, Half-Human, The H-Man, Son of Godzilla, Submersion of Japan, Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla, and The Blue Stigma. He did eight Akira Kurosawa films with Yojimbo, Sanjiro, High and Low, Redbeard, I Live in Fear, The Lower Depths, The Hidden Fortress, and The Bad Sleep. Well, your director of effects, Sadamasa Arikawa, worked on Ultra Q, Ultraman, Kaiju Buska, Ultra 7, Son of Godzilla, Destroy All Monsters, Mighty Jack, Fight Mighty Jack, Space Amoeba, Rainbow Man, The Mighty Peking Man as an uncredited effects director, and the 1978 film The Phoenix. As for your cast, leading the cast, Akira Takarada, who played Yoshimura, was in Godzilla, Half Human, The Three Treasures, The Last War, Mothra vs. Godzilla, Invasion of Astro Monster, King Kong Escapes, Latitude Zero, Godzilla vs. Mothra, Godzilla Final Wars, and finally, The Great Buddha Arrival. Kumi Mizuna, who played Dio, was in The Three Treasures, Gorath, Matango, Frankenstein vs. Baragon, Invasion of Astro Monster, and finally, Godzilla Final Wars. Akihito Hirata, who played Captain Ryu of the Red Bamboo, was in Godzilla, Rodan, The Mysterians, The H-Man, Giant Monster Varen, The Secret of the Talesian, Mothra, Gorath, King Kong vs. Godzilla, Atragon, Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster, Ultra Q, Ultra Man, The Killing Bottle, Ultra 7, Son of Godzilla, Latitude Zero, Rainbow Man, The War in Space, and Bye Bye Jupiter. Jun Takahashi, who played the Red Bamboo Base Commander, was in Gorath, King Kong vs. Godzilla, Mothra vs. Godzilla, Invasion of Astro Monster, Destroy All Monsters, Atragon, High and Low, Dogura, Frankenstein vs. Baragon, The War of the Gargantuas, Akira Kurosawa's Ron, Astro Boy, the 1959 TV show, Ultra Q, and Kamen Rider. Hideo Sunazuka, who played Nita, was in Degaro vs. Goliath, Blind Woman's Curse, and The Lost World of Simbad. Chotaro Togen, who played Ichino, was in Space Amoeba, All Monsters Attack, Destroy All Monsters, Son of Godzilla, Ultra Q, Dogura, Fight Mighty Jack, and Battle Fever J. Toru Ibuki, who played Yuta, was in Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster, Invasion of Astro Monster, Ultra Q, King Kong Escapes, Destroy All Monsters, and finally, Terror of Mechagodzilla. And then, as I previously mentioned, Toru Watanabe, who played Ryota, had no other credits to his name. And with that, are we going to transition to the ranking? Yeah, I just have to say, when we cover Godzilla or Toho movies in general, 
I always don't look forward to doing the main cast and crew because their list is like a mile oh, long. You don't need to you don't need to list off every single film. I to gotta be thorough. Fun. But yes, let's let's do our ranking. So let's start start at our least favorite so far that we've covered. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna talk about the Godzilla films through nineteen fifty four up until nineteen sixty six, correct? Yep. Okay. So we're gonna start at the bottom of our list. And then we're going to make our way up to the top. So, Rex, what's what's at the bottom of your list? Number seven, Godzilla Raids Again. I agree. That's uh, that's sitting at number seven for me as well. It's just a boring movie for me. It's a underwhelming sequel. What's your number six? Following it is at number six, Ebita, Hotter of the Deep. Oh, this is where our lists start to diverge. My number six is Mothra versus Godzilla. I had a funny feeling you might say that. I just, I, the movie is so boring. I just cannot get invested or interested in the movie. It is so boring. See, I can get invested in it. It's just that the third, uh, the, the end of the set. Yeah, after the, the main after, fight. In the yeah, third after Mothra dies. Yeah, the third act of that movie, I will agree, is pretty bad. <laughs> but I think the mess is legitimately solid. Um, so, yeah. And then, yeah, number five for me, following right above Ibra, is Mothra versus Godzilla. Mine is Ibra, Horror of the Deep. I mean, the movie's not great, but it's not boring into the last 10 minutes, which is better than the last 30 minutes of Mothra versus. And then at number four, I've got. King Kong vs. Godzilla. Same here. Same here. It's a fun satire. <laughs> Above it is is 1965's Invasion of the Astro Monster. Same here. Same here. Great space opera. <laughs> At number two. So previously I have put Godzilla 1954 there and Ghidorah the Free Monster at number one. Oh no. Your but opinion changed. after... A recent rewatch of 54, I've realized, you know, 54 is a lot better than I realize, than I remember. So at number two, it pains me, but I have to say it, Ghidorah the Freeheaded Monster. <sighs> <laughs> number two for me is Godzilla 54. God. And then number one for me is 54. Number one for me is Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster. <laughs> but in saying it's that, it, pretty close, Pre- pretty close for me. I, I really enjoy both of those films a lot. Yeah, I mean, fair enough, fair enough. Now, I would love to talk more on them, but I think we've, I mean, we have covered them pretty well in our, our, in our, in our other episodes covering them. So, for That's anybody who recording is looking quite long, <laughs> yeah. So, for anybody who, if this is your first episode with us. Thanks for watching, or thanks for listening. If this is your first Godzilla episode for us, definitely go back, listen to us cover 54 all the way up to this, where we talk in, I think, pretty good detail about all the other films. Um, I I think uh, this has been a very interesting and an eye-opening for both of us, kind of figuring out what we like about the Godzilla movies and what we don't. Um, so definitely check I mean, those I out. I look at Ibra in a, in a new light after this watching. So 
Yeah, this, me too. There's been some value in this. <laughs> um, we've also covered another Fukuda film. We covered The War in Space. So if you're a fan of Fukuda, we've talked about The War in Space as well. Um, and, you know, we're, we're going to continue talking about Kaiju and Tokusatsu. And uh, hopefully, eventually, one day, we will have all of the Toho Kaiju Ega covered. <laughs> so... If you're ready, I think we'll transition to the next thing, which we actually have a listener comment. Oh. So for anybody who is listening, you can leave us a review on Apple iTunes. Leave, leave us a five-star review. Tell us why. We'll read it out for everyone to hear. Or you can leave us a, a review on Spotify. We have seven reviews on Spotify, all five-star. Thank you, guys. Both of them, thank you for leaving us a review. If you can, please, please, please leave us a review. Um, we're sitting at a 3.2 on Apple iTunes, which I, I don't necessarily agree with. But if you guys could you know, help fix that, it would be greatly appreciated. But Spotify also gives you the option to respond to episodes. And we've already covered one of these. Somebody posted on a minus one episode. But we have another one from bonus episode 15, The Great War of Archimedes. Ooh. And this is from Sam Paradis. I hope I'm saying your name right, Sam. I'm sorry if I'm wrong. And he said, I, I always. <laughs> he said, I always interpreted the film as saying that Japan needed to be reborn in order to survive. War was inevitable, but the Yamato as a symbol of imperial might, in a way, save Japan from annihilation. Hmm. It, it, it's an interesting take. I mean, I'd have to rewatch the film to and kind of have that in mind and sort of think about it, um, mm -hmm. which I kind of intend on do, I, thinking about doing, to be honest, thinking about maybe giving Eternal Zero when great up or of Archimedes, another another watch <laughs> i will say i remember at the end of that movie the uh our main character does say that he views the yamato as a symbol for japan so maybe it was kind of like a japan lit uh the battleship yamato sank so that japan could live maybe i i'd, I'd have to I'd, I'd have to watch the film again with that lens yeah. to try and pick up on it i guess but that's definitely an interesting take and uh i do i do like that um so thank you sam for that for that <laughs> response i i probably should rewatch it now and think about that see what i can what i can uh take from that and you know if if you guys want to leave us like responses like that we'd love to hear from you um whether it's something we said or you know whatever like Feel free if to. We think we're uh, wrong. Then feel free to call us out on when we're wrong. <laughs> absolutely. And with that, I think we have officially reached the point where we can once again indulge ourselves in the most noblest of podcasting traditions. Yes. And what would that be, Rex? Well, that would be linking ourselves, would it not? It would be. And with that, I shall implore you, you dear listeners, to 
check me out. I am on YouTube at Rexino, on Twitter at Rex underscore Xenomorph, and on Instagram, Rex underscore Xeno. And if you want to check out some of my writing, go take a look at the Tokusatsu Network. As for me, hello, I'm Elijah, and I have a kaiju and tokusatsu problem. Yes. Joking aside, I am part of the rotating hosts for Monsters with Attitude. You can check us out on YouTube where we do monthly live streams talking about kaiju entertainment. You can also head over to Facebook and join our Facebook group. It's a great place to talk with like-minded people. I'm also a writer. I've written for GodzillaMovies.com and Kaiju Ramen Magazine. Currently, I write for Kaiju United. My most recent article is about Takashi Yamazaki in Godzilla Minus One, a great foundation for understanding the context of Yamazaki and what he was doing with this film. My writing has also been featured in the book Giant Bug Cinema, a monster kid's guide from Bear Manor Media, where I wrote about Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster. I'm also a filmmaker and a YouTuber. You can check out my stuff on my YouTube channel, ET13 Productions, where you can find some of my short films and my older YouTube videos, along with a playlist that features all of my appearances on YouTube. I do plan on getting new videos on there soon, so definitely check that out and, and wait for that. I also appeared in a kaiju movie, um, a little-known film called Zillafoot from 2021. I made a brief cameo in the film as Skywatcher number 2. It's got a rating of 3.7 out of 10 on IMDb, so if you want to watch more kaiju, you can buy the Blu-ray on srscinema.com or the DVD from any major online retailer, or just watch it for free on Tubi with ads or on Prime. You can also check out my action figure photography on Instagram at ET13 underscore productions and my ex, the artist formerly known as Twitter. Thanks, Danny, at the same handle. So definitely check out all of that. But as for the podcast, don't forget to write us on iTunes that boosts the ratings and helps us get recommended to more people just like you. If you don't have an Apple device, which I don't blame you, I don't actually, that's a lie. I'm using a MacBook to use this to do this podcast right now. You can rate us on Spotify, however. If you want to stay up to date with all things Kaiju Conversation related, follow us on Twitter at K-A-I-J-U underscore C-O-N-V-E-R-S. If you don't have a Twitter, you can follow us on Instagram or like us on Facebook. If you're like me before podcasting and you don't have any social media, lucky you. You can email us at kaijuconversation at gmail.com, all lowercase, all one word, you know the drill. And as always, we'll read your reviews on air for everyone to hear. We also have a Teespring store. Eventually, we'll have original artwork on there. But until then, you can sport our awesome logo on a t-shirt or maybe even a coffee mug. If you'd like to chat with us, check out our Discord server full of others that have similar interests to you. Recently, we had a discussion in our general one chat about the recent addition of Ultraman to Gigabash and how now Ultraman and Godzilla can officially fight each other. So it's a great community full of great people. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit the bell so you can be notified anytime we upload a video. We sometimes post exclusives to the channel, like bloopers for episodes or minisodes talking about news or other subjects. We also have an interview with Mechagodzilla designer Jared Kurchevsky on the channel. I definitely butchered his name. I'm so sorry. And a huge thanks to Rex for editing all of these episodes and all the other content we upload. His links can be found in the description below. 
Along with Rex, we'd like to give a huge thanks and shout out to Danny DeManna of the Godzilla Novelization Project for his amazing vocals on our theme song. You can support him by following him on Twitter at Danzilla93 underscore GNP or visit his website, GodzillaNovelizationProject.com. And a huge thanks to Grattan Conwell from the podcast Giant Monster BS for composing the music for our theme song. You can support him by following the podcast on Twitter at Giant Monster BS or on any podcast platform under the name Giant Monster BS. And with that, we're going to wrap things up here. So thank you guys so much for listening. It was great to cover another Godzilla movie. Don't fret, though. The next one is a lot closer than you may think. And as always, please remember, life's too short to not talk big. Bye, guys. Bye. We are set. We are in debt. There's nothing to sweat. Life's too short now, baby. Now, baby, we love those kaiju, baby, and you will too now.